Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join in on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888 888- Four four one seven two nine zero, or go to preparewithsouthernsense dot com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern dot com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to eight 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 four four one seven two nine zero. Or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. Find out the colors. All right. You're here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News up in iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your host, just with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, with my elegant and oh, so one. <laughs> I mean, I'm with this up, Curtis. <laughs> Curtis C. S. Bennett. Good. Oh, good Lord! See what happens. <laughs> Still he gets great. us up all 
screwed up a little bit here. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, welcome back to another adventure over here. Ah, jeez. I'm your host. <laughs> Oh man, you know I can I can mess up a wet dream. You know that. Uh, well, we're here. We're live. We're today <laughs> on Sunset. Uh, Curtis, we've got ourselves some great guests lined up. We've got Dr. Evan Argenter, and he's going to be talking about a new method to do surgery that eliminates eliminates opioids. Can you imagine mm. having surgery and not getting an opioid? Oh, man, how wonderful is wow. that? Um, we're also going to have, yep, uh, Derek Boyd Hankerson, your friend, about a film he did, Gullah Geechee Carter film, as well as other items that are going on. And I happen to yeah. live uh, in the Gullah Geechee Carter, in the, Corridor. the heartland of it. Uh, yep, right there. We have a Gullah Festival every year, just right down the road from us. And then we have our friend Mike Hill returning, uh, Karen Strayan, uh, she is Girls Write What, uh, she's a voice for men, uh, and then we have Dr. Uh, Warren Farrell, he's got a new book out called The Boy Crisis, so we got ourselves a lot of stuff exciting coming up uh, today, I'm just trying to get, I'm a little slow on the uptake today, and it looks like my computer's giving me a little bit of a heartache here as I try to unmess some of this stuff. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about, a lot that's going on. Um, I'm just trying to figure out where I left off. We have uh, the Cohen testifying once again. So much to talk about, so much to do. I want to welcome those listening in the chat room as well as up on Facebook and YouTube. And I finally got ourselves there. Yay! took me a little bit of a while <laughs> to do that. I was supposed to well, be switching you know, computers around. To... I'm still having problems so, getting into the chat room, so uh, you're not by yourself with this technical issue stuff. I tell you. Yeah. It never ends. Never. Well, like I said. Surprise. Oh, you're breaking. And I'm getting a, a, like a feedback noise too. Holy cow! Hmm. I don't hear right. it. I don't know what's going on. I get something that keeps on coming back in my ear. It could be on my end. I don't know. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about, a lot to do today. I want to thank everyone for being with us. Let's start off with our dedication. And everyone knows that every single show we do is with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Air Force Staff Sergeant James T. Grochen, who died on July 12th of last year while serving during Operation Inherent Resolve. And the articles I have are from uh, The Fallen on Military Times as well as Air Force Times. And it reads, For Air Force Staff Sergeant James Grochen, who went by his middle name Tyler, family was number one. He was the family's rock, what kept them together. What's keeping them together now is that he died doing what he loved. That's what's keeping us going. Knowing he died doing what he loved, Grochen's mother, Laura Prentice, told the day at her home in Quaker Hill. In her front yard now stands a sign built by her husband that reads, Staff Sergeant James T. Grochen, fly free with the angels. Grochen, 26, grew up in Colchester and Groyton, 
died July 12, 2018 at Langstahl Regional Medical Center in Germany from injuries sustained in a non-combat-related incident on July 8th at al Dhafar Air Base in the United Arab Emirates. He was about two months into a six-month deployment. The Air Force did not provide any details on the incident that led to his death, which was under investigation. But his family said Grochen, a water and fuel systems maintenance craftsman with Civil Engineer Squadron at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina, was working in a manhole underground in the UAE on July 8th when he was exposed to a methane gas leak. He became unconscious and ended up in a coma on life support. His mother, father Randy Grochen Taylor, traveled to Germany to be with him and say goodbye before he was taken off of life support. There, Taylor pressed her ring finger, which has a tattoo of a locked heart, against her husband's ring finger, tattooed with the image of a key. My husband had the key, the key to my heart. We knew we were each other's one, Taylor Groton said at her mother-in-law's house. The couple who knew each other since they were in diapers were married for seven years. When two service members in uniform showed up at the door of the house in North Carolina that she and her husband bought in January of 2017, Taylor Grochen didn't suspect the worst. Her husband was a jokester, she said, and told her that if she didn't keep them on load, he would send over someone in uniform to mow the lawn. So at first... When she saw just one of the two service members, it was like, I just mowed the lawn a couple of days ago. Why are they here? At first, I thought it was a joke. When she finally noticed the second service member, she knew it wasn't good. Her husband had been in a bad accident, they told her. She then informed her husband's parents. I am honestly extremely bothered by the way my son passed away. I'm hoping we have all the answers within the next few months. From what we know now, it bothers me. It was an accident that should have never happened, Prentice, his mother said. We have a thousand questions, his father said. Those questions were answered. Grochen, 26, was a water and fuel systems maintenance airman with the 4th Civil Engineer Squadron. He was assigned to the 380th Additionary Civil Engineering Squadron. He and five other men were preparing to clear out a clogged sewage line on July 8th when a fiberglass manhole cover fell down the roughly 17-foot shaft. The report said, noticeable smell when the cover was removed. The team discussed how they might retrieve the cover, which needed to happen before they could start clearing the line. But before they finished coming up with a plan, Grochen got his gloves from his truck and climbed down into the manhole. Started climbing back up. About one-third of the way up, he dropped the cover, began to hyperventilate, suffered a rapid loss of consciousness, and fell from the ladder, according to the ground accident investigation report, which was released by the Air Combat Command. By then, he had been in the manhole for less than a minute. The rest of the team immediately called a rescue team 
and two firefighters wearing protective equipment and breathing apparatuses descended. They found Groch's skin was blue. He was unresponsive, not breathing, and had a weak or faint pulse. Before long, they could not detect any pulse. The rescue team above assembled a tripod, lifted Grochin out. He had been in the manhole for about 20 minutes in all, and immediately began carmopolymeric CPR and loaded him into an ambulance. Medical personnel restored his heartbeat, but he remained unresponsive and unable to breathe, and the medical test showed no signs of brain activity. Three days later, he was airlifted to Langstall Regional Medical Center in Germany, but his condition did not improve. He was pronounced dead and removed from life support on July 12th. The report said Grochen died of anixic brain injury or lack of oxygen to the brain and hypomaxic cardiac arrest. Grochen knew he wanted to join the military from a young age wanting to follow in the footsteps of his father, a retired Navy senior chief. It takes a special kind of person to want to join the military. These are the type of people that write a blank check for their life to protect the country, and he was that guy, Randy Grochen said. Grochen's supervisor, Technical Sergeant James Mosher, said by phone that Grochen was a hard worker who showed up on time, even early on some occasions. While a jokester, he took his job very seriously and was eager to teach others what he knew. His mother recalled how he used to tell her, don't ever, don't ever worry about me, Mom. I'm a plumber. My job is safe. A mama's boy, Grochen spoke to his mother daily. When she sent him several messages on Facebook on the morning of July 8th and never heard back, she got worried. It wasn't like him to not respond. Grochen was beloved by his siblings, who bragged about him being in the Air Force. The second oldest of eight children, Grochen had yet his newest sister, Grace, born seven weeks ago. A Facebook page was set up to help the Grochen family with the travel and funeral expenses. Money left over was donated to the Langstall Fisher House which houses families and patients receiving medical care at Langstall Regional Medical Center, Grochen's mother said. In the weeks since his death, the family had been sharing memories and pictures of Grochen and their plans for keeping his memory going. Us being united is what's keeping us together and upright. It's how we get out of bed every morning right now, his wife, Taylor, said. Today's show is dedicated to Air Force Staff Sergeant James T. Grochen. Is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in the military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. I'm 
fought for my liberty. I paid with the blood of my people. Never been free. Now my door's always open to dreamers and friends. Listen to Seven Cents here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Strike. 
Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most ready to Canny, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And we have a special guest that my co-host did not tell me about. Shame on him. But welcome aboard to Congressman Ted Yoho. Good afternoon, Ted. How are you today? Welcome back. Fine, Ann. Great, uh, great to be back. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Ted. Oh, hey, CS. How are you? I knew you were hiding there right. somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep them behind the doors. You know, I keep them hidden. <laughs> I don't let them come out too often. <laughs> yeah, I know you only got a few oh, minutes. Man. We'll make the most of it because I know yeah. you got a meeting to go. Absolutely. I- we have been watching on the TV the dog and pony show going on with uh, this attorney, Michael Cohen. My goodness, give us your take about what you see happening here. And will they actually find something to trump on, or is it just going to be another blow in the wind? It's going to be another blow in the wind. It's a dog and pony show. You know, our nation's $22 trillion in debt. We've got an aggressive China. We've got conflicts in Venezuela. There's about 80 million people displaced around the world as refugees. And um, for the nation to focus on Michael Cohen, uh, an an admitted liar, and uh, one that's been proven to be a liar, uh, speaks very little for what we're doing in Congress. We need to focus on the major problems this nation is facing, not Michael Cohen. Absolutely. And what I found really interesting is that it's gone on for this long to begin with, you know, and this is all the media is talking about, which unfortunately now we're talking about. But as soon as he went out to testify, I started screaming at the TV and my husband going, isn't he violating attorney client privileges? He's already been disbarred, but he still has the attorney client privileges that he continued to violate. And Lord knows how many other laws he's broken by being there. I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I mean, that just shows you the character of the man and the ethic or lack thereof. And if you read the prelude, uh, the preface of his book, where he praised Donald Trump, and this was after the Helsinki meeting and all that. And then all of a sudden, he's done 180 degree. Again, I would choose not to waste my time or the, the taxpayers money having an investigation or a hearing with Michael Cohen. I wouldn't give them any more time a day. I would talk about, you know, border security. Let's talk about guest worker programs and those things that are going to really make America stronger. Yeah, it's something that no one really is talking about is what's going on with our southern border, as well as these uh, visas that are being ignored and people are here illegally because they're overstaying their visas. And yet they talk about issuing more worker visas. And no one's paying attention to the security. Just recently, there was a group of Central Americans that tried to rush the border near New Laredo. But you don't see anything in the news about that. No, you don't. And the focus has been on Donald Trump's wall, not border security. And Nancy Pelosi, I'm going to be real frank with this, Nancy Pelosi doesn't give a damn about the 800,000 people that were laid off because of government shutdown. She'll, she'll act like she does. She'll work that. But what she cares about is not letting Donald Trump getting any portion of that wall because he can claim victory. And if he claims victory, 
They're afraid they won't win the presidential election in 2020, nor should they. It's unconscionable that she'll put politics over the security of the United States of America. I think we're all in agreement. We need border security from all the above, from a physical barrier, a wall, whatever you want to call it, the technology, the drones, the boots on the ground. And we will get border security. And from that point forward, we need to enforce the laws already on the book. Then we can get a good guest worker program. Then we can deal with DACA. But until these other things are done first, uh, it'd be like, you know, sailing your boat and cleaning everything while you got holes in the hull and it's sinking. And uh, we need to take care of the, the, the primary things and the urgent things first. And that's, that is the truth, because right now Trump is playing around with the military budgets, moving funds from one place to another to help build this wall. Well, what's happening from your companions there in Congress? They're screaming, you can't touch their budget. You're taking away from military projects. But that's not what he's doing, is it? No, he's not. I mean, there's some projects that are going to be a little bit shorted this year. But and we have been trying to secure this border under Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, the Bush, the, both Bushes, uh, Barack Obama, and it's not a secure border. It's not that big of a deal if you have the uh, intestinal fortitude to say, we're going to secure this border once and for all. And then from that point, things start falling into place. There's less chaos down there. There's rule of law and there's order. And um, this is something, again, it will happen one way or the other. And if it's a shortage in some of these um, Department of Defense budgets, it'll be a shortage this year. And um, we'll get it straight next year. Because if we do it properly, the monies that will be saved from the resources that we're having to expend to secure that border, we won't have to spend. And so there'll be more money to do those things that we really need to do and focus on. Yeah. Now, quietly, which no one paid attention to, a new gun control measure passed in the House, extending the waiting period from three to ten days. And Nancy Pelosi has on her desk another gun control measure that would extend the background check. Is this another, I'm trying to find the right word, but the audacity of what they're doing now because they have control of the House is stunning. It's, it's stunning and it's a prelude of what they're going to do if they get the Senate or the White House. What they have done is this is an assault on the Second Amendment and law-abiding citizens. They're focusing on gun violence. A gun on a table is not violent. It's the human behind that, uh, that gun. And it could be a machete, a hammer, an SUV, a van. What we've seen in the past, it's human violence, not gun violence. And we need to put the focus where it is. What this bill will do, and President Obama said this bill will do nothing without a national registry. They took a big portion of national registry out of this. So by their own design, it will do nothing. It's just a messaging bill. However, they decentralized the registration, and it's more ubiquitous in there at a state level. And so this is the beginning of a national registry that the Democrats all stood up and applauded. And a, a, a friend of mine says, Look at the Democrats. They're applauding for the erosion of our liberties. Uh, we've seen it on infanticide, um, the abortion bills. 
we're trying to make it illegal for a doctor not to tend to a baby that's uh, born under a failed abortion that's born alive to give it the same life support systems and mechanisms and procedures that we would any other child. But the Democrat says, no, that baby should be put to sleep. And, uh, you know, it's just hard to believe in America that would happen. And you look in New York where the legislators passed full-term abortion, and they stood up and cheered. The Democrats stood up and cheered like they won a sporting event. And the same thing in in Virginia. And uh, America needs to wake up. Yeah, there is a moral erosion in America, and my husband and I were talking about that last night, and thank God I'm married to someone that thinks like I do, otherwise be World War 14 in this house. Yeah, really. Uh, but there is a moral erosion. You know, civics are not being taught to our kids. Not only that, just simple human decency and manners are not being taught to our children today. You know, how many times do you see someone walk through a door and they don't hold it for the person coming behind you just simple oh, human decency seems to be disappearing and that's a shame they are they really are you know one of my pet peeves is when you see a perfectly healthy person pull into a handicapped parking spot runs into the store and comes out and i've stood up to these people and asked them is that handicapped sick or yours no it's my grandmother's what are you doing in this spot well, I just had to be here for a minute. I said, what about the person that wants to pull in there? We have to be willing to confront people in a pleasant way, but just let them know that's just not acceptable behavior. Yeah, it's funny because I walked into the post office one day, and I was wearing a back brace. It was very obvious I had a brace on, and I could not hold the door. So a gentleman came in right behind me and started to berate me. Here I am in a full back brace. Come on. But this is what's happening, be rather confrontational and rather having a civil discussion. And we don't see this in Congress. We don't see it on the street. And how many times are we hearing story after story of people with a mega hat being beaten up, having the hats knocked off their head, being confronted, being banned from restaurants? Civil discourse in America has just walked out the window. And unfortunately, it's, it started a long time ago. But it became very apparent when Obamacare passed, because in the bill that you did not vote for, obviously, we are not said we're not called a human being. We're not called a patient. We're not called an individual. We are called a unit. And once you dehumanize. That's right. Legislation, right. I forgot about it, that, but you're right. Hello, Nancy Pelosi. I read the House bill and the Senate bill before they were passed. <laughs> I did it before you read the bill and passed the bill. And I wrote extensively about this. But once you take away our humanity and make us things, then it's easier to destroy us, as they are doing to the unborn child, as they did in Obamacare. We're a unit. We're just a number. And that's what we do. So you how really do we are. And regain our humanity. Uh, get down on our knees and humble ourselves before God and uh, ask for forgiveness. Then he will bless his nation. Well, unfortunately, Ted, they've even taken God out of it, and they made one assault against God in the public forum after another. The latest one, again, on that World War One crucifix uh, that, fortunately, a judge ruled in favor of. And they've taken God out, out of the public forum. But where is it in the Constitution that says there's a separation of church and state? 
Right. The whole that whole argument was so that the state does not create a national religion or uh, a government of or a religion of the government like the Church of England. And that was what our founders intended. But you're so right when you said they took God out um, so many places and they keep trying to do this. Go back to um, the first election of Barack Obama, the Democratic National Committee took in God we trust and any reference to God out of their platform. They got caught and they said it was an oversight and they put it back in. This Congress here, um, Mike, Mike Johnson's a good friend of mine out of Louisiana, uh, very Christian founded. He's uh, chairman of the Republican study committee. He's on the committees with Jerry Nadler. And when they swear in a witness, they have taken out, um, um, the words in God we trust. And so Mike has called them out on that and they said, Oh, we didn't intend to do it. It was an oversight. Well, let, lo and behold, the next meeting where they had to swear in witnesses, they took it out again. Mike Johnson called them out again, says, uh, Mr. Chairman, you took out these words. And he goes, oh, it was another oversight. And so he, we've got people in there that are going to keep calling the Democrats out for who they are. You know, they're, they're working against the very foundational principles that have built this great nation and how anybody, anybody can vote for a Democrat, a modern Democrat, is on just unthinkable to me. I just don't understand the rationale because it's going to, it's the antithesis of what America was built on. And, um, you know, if I've got another second, H.R. 1 is a bill that Nancy Pelosi is bringing up that changes our voting laws in this nation to the point where a person can go to a voting booth the day of the election. You don't have to show an ID. All you have to do is sign an affidavit that you are who you are. And wow. if the, the, the election committee finds out later that you lied, there is no recourse to that person, no fine, no punishment. So CS, you and I could go around to all the different counties and we could register that day under the Democrats' proposal and just tell them, you know, just tell them we live here, this is who we are with no picture ID, no citizenship, and uh, they would have to accept us. This is what your modern Democrat Party is doing. This is something the American people need to raise up. I'm not going to say raise up in arms, but raise up in um, uh, protest to what the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi, and this is solely Nancy Pelosi, H.R. 1, when it's the low numbers, uh, the Speaker of the House has numbers 1 through 10. The lower the number, the more importance this is. And so this is a priority of Pelosi's. Yeah, they have no shame, no shame whatsoever. And I'm going to tell you another thing no that bothers me with the Democrat Party. You know, blacks in the Democrat Party are held as statesmen and, and, and a hero to the cause. And when it comes to blacks in the Republican Party, not only are we Uncle Tom's and House Negroes, but now we're token blacks whenever it comes to um you know, white Republican or conservative having a black friend, as so Apple right. points out in the um the hearings yesterday. And that really offends me, you know, ticks me off. What what are your thoughts on that? CS, you're absolutely right, because that's a form of racism. That's keeping your place on the plantation. If you if you dare stand up against the Democratic Party, 
they're going to go after you. I've got a good friend of mine, and you know him. In fact, his aunt is in Putnam County, uh, uh-huh. Mary Lawson. Oh, okay. He, he dared yeah. to stand up. He got elected in District 5, I think it is. He dared to stand up on Trump's first uh, State of the Union address, and he was clapping. He got ostracized by his own party. His own party, the Congressional Black Caucus of his party, ran people against him in the primary, and they were trying to throw him out because he dared to celebrate America. And it was when President Trump said that unemployment across the board is at the lowest it's ever been for the for everybody, whites, blacks, Hispanics. And I know you remember when he did that. They went after that representative representing his district because he dared to go against the groupthink of the Democratic Party. And you talk about having an indentured servant or a slave. The Democratic Party is doing that to their members in Congress. Well, that's their history anyway. It is. Well, yeah. yeah. You and I have talked a lot about this. The history of the Democratic Party is they yeah. developed the KKK. The history of right. the Democratic Party, they were anti um, 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 uh, they they were for slavery and uh, anti-abolitionists. Yeah, and they Tim Crow, the party of Tim Crow, and all that. Yeah, and they call us Tim Crow. Yeah. And do you realize Tim Crow was a fictional person? Uh, Jim Crow, Jim Crow. It was a fictional yeah. person in a play, and they they made the Jim Crow laws, and they blamed the white Republicans. The white Republicans were the ones or I don't want to say just white Republicans, any Republican was the one supporting the Civil Rights Act. The Democrats were against that. You know, and if you go back, as you and I have talked about, um, after Reconstruction, the majority of the African Americans that ran for office were Republicans like Josiah T. Walls from Alachua County, a celebrated African American entrepreneur, farmer, newspaper man. And it was the Democratic Party that went after him and got him denounced and recalled his elections twice. And then they have the, the, the nerve to say that the Republican Party is racist. I mean, these people are unconscionable. They'll, they remind me of jo- Joseph Goebbels under his, Hitler, and I'm not calling them Nazis or Hitler. I'm just saying Joseph Goebbels had the propaganda um, machine and they kept telling lie after lie, and if you tell it long enough, people will believe it. Well, we have a comment in the chat room for you, Congressman, uh, from our friend Vorp. He said, Americans seem to be like alcoholics, only on socialism. Things aren't going to get better till we hit rock bottom. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, you know, we've heard that before. Let's hope we don't have to go that far. Let's hope there's a, a resurgence of American pride, the greatness of America, America was founded on some very basic principles. Our rights come from a creator, not from government. Governments instituted by we the people. Founding principles were all created equal to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. You know, yes, we did have slavery. It was a terrible sin on this nation. Yes, there were some iniquities. There still are there today, and there will always be because there's people in in our country. And as long as there's people, there's always going to be good and bad. But I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Our Constitution guarantees equal opportunity for all, not equal outcome, 
equal opportunity. And if people that take advantage of opportunity to become the best they can in this government of their choosing of the, of the profession or career, um, that you don't get anywhere else in the world. And people need to wake up and realize what we have or they will lose it. And then we'll hit rock bottom and it'll be a rebuilding. And I'd rather not see that because we know what causes this. That is unfortunate. But with people like you and Lou Gomer out there, I've got hope. Unfortunately, I lost my congressman, Mark Sanford, uh, to Joe Beercan Cunningham. I can't believe he actually tried to get onto the House floor with a (laughs) six-pack. That's what we got. I tell you what, we already have people uh, lining up to run against yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's the new party, and then the Acosta or the Cortezes and the Taludes and the Omars. That's uh, yeah, they. I'd be embarrassed to be in that party myself. Uh, absolutely, and there is some question as to whether or not uh, Cortez lives in her district as well as Taleb. There's some questions about where she resides. Uh, there have been people that tried to get to their offices and found them empty, locked, sealed. So. Wondering whether or not they actually are eligible to be sitting in such a noble house, the House of Congress. But Ted, I thank you for hanging with us. Um, Curtis, I don't know what happened to our guest, uh, Dr. Argento. Hopefully, he'll fantastic job well, out there. We need more on. people like you out there. Well, thank you. And ma'am. I know you got to stop this schedule, so. All right, thanks a lot. Congressman Ted Yoho, check him check out his website by going to the House of Congress. He does a marvelous Take job, care. Uh, Curtis. Yeah. Yeah. Take care, um, Congressman. I've been able to reach our other guest, Dr. Argenter, Curtis. I left I left two messages and um we're still waiting. So I guess we have to mm. um, go with the um <clears throat> what's going on today in conversation because there's a lot. There's a lot going on. We, of course, oh, yeah. we had the president over there in Vietnam trying to reach some kind of agreement um, with North Korea and um, didn't quite make it, but he's still being panned by the left. But I, I think, you know, down the road, we're going to get to an agreement, you know. Uh, hopefully. Got uh, one of our listeners in on the line, a former co-host of mine, Cool Mike. Good afternoon, Mikey. How are you today? I am Mike. great, and welcome back, guys. I uh, I've been able to listen since you've come back, uh, but I haven't been able to partake. Uh, Annie, um, I, I don't know if uh, Curtis, you're old enough to remember this, but uh, didn't the Democrats pretty much say the same thing when uh, uh, Grape Stain had their uh, from Russia? They're um, walked out of uh, the Helsinki summits uh, or in Reykjavik oh. saying Star oh, Wars. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, they, he walked off on Reagan. We're talking about, uh, I can't remember Gorbachev. his name, Gorbachev. Yeah, Gorbachev. And they said, you yeah. know, the Democrats were claiming Star Wars doesn't even work and Reagan's going to start World War Three. And, oh, boy. I mean, one of the problems with Democrats is they're too stupid to even be stupid. And you, they attain their narrative. See, they attain their narrative on social media because they have a 30-second memory span. If you really think about it, every day there's a new smoking gun. Do they even go back to the point that the election may have been fixed 
or Trump was going to start World War III, or just everything. Every single day it's something new, but they have no memory of it. So, I mean, just let the tradition continue. Uh, It is amazing how when you uh, look at, uh, compares to the media, if you look at the leaders in the world, whether it's China, North Korea, uh, outside of uh, Canada and Cuba, you see great respect for this country again. And incidentally, that guest was spot on. What a true, true friend of liberties he is. Oh, Congressman Ted Yoho? Yeah. Yes. I mean, just he, he, he told it like it is. I mean, he didn't mix any, wor- didn't mix any words. But, I mean, once again, uh, we had a meeting with Little Rocket Man. This is his second meeting. How many right. did Obama have? How many did even G.W. Dumb, dummy Bush have? Uh, you know, George W. pretty much appeased him. So did Bill Clinton. But, I mean, we're making progress, and you're right, Curtis, down the road. None of these things are solved. This is it, We're in the second or third chapter of a 15-chapter book being written. So there's going to be plenty of highs and lows. But for the media, you know, their only objective is to destroy the greatest country on earth. Uh, that that is the that is the ultimate goal. So I mean, th- well, it's like that's like Rush Limbaugh was saying today. Everything they touch, the left that is, they corrupt. Whether it's sports or politics or or the environment, you know, they corrupt everything. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And one of the one of the most uh, I, I I don't I don't know how to word this uh, anyway, but like this. Uh, they're not stupid enough to believe everything on this planet is free and free money. But they're stupid enough to be indoctrinated in order to push for their cause. And their cause is obviously many, many years ago, people who pushed the communist doctrine infiltrated by using their smarts, infiltrated our schools and many aspects of the lower level of governments. And now they're everywhere, even at the higher levels of government. And this is how you slowly and surely try to chop down a very strong tree. But what is most uh, really resolved is the American spirit. And they're just having – it, it has come to a point now where you have a president who is not really a Democrat or a Republican. He's an American. And that is creating fits for everybody. And I, I, I heard Rush today, and I have to agree – I think in some ways they may be pushing so far to the left. Uh, they may find Trump winning 48 states. Um, but I mean, even pushing the middle way off the edge. Uh, because when you start uh, fighting with communism, um, and this is only going to develop much, much more as the uh, Democratic primary, you're, you start scaring those people who are really not like us really involved in politics. They vote in the presidential election, pretty much take the rest off. But you start talking about communism and siding with them, uh, you start doing what Walter Mondale did, and that scare an awful lot of Americans. Well, you got a point there about the um, possibility of us winning 48 states because there was a Gallup poll that came out last week, and it says um, there's only six states where – Democrats um, outnumber Republicans. Six states, and California isn't even one of those. 
Can you believe that? So, you know, well, we... Any, believe, any, what were you going to say? I, that I believe. Uh, I saw that report also. But just remember also, Colorado just passed the popular vote. They said yeah. wherever yeah. the national popular vote is, that is how our state uh, electoral college members will yeah. vote. So Colorado just said what our voters say in our state just doesn't matter. If we elect, if we on the primary or in the general election go for a Republican, the majority of the people, and the national popular vote happens to be a Democrat, God forbid it's Hillary Clinton or any of the others that are running right now, Camilla Harris, God forbid, the voters in Colorado don't matter at all. And if they take over the Electoral College with the national popular vote resolutions, our nation will be sunk. So they don't care. So a handful minority of people in those six states can control the entire 50 states. And yeah, we got to get, get Bobby Lawrence back on. Well, and, and we as Americans so, have to get our backbone. You know, we're just a bunch of wimps and sissies who are using all kinds of excuses not to fight. Nothing in life was accomplished. This country was formed on a war. Uh, the blacks got the right to vote by fighting for civil rights. The women got the right to vote for fighting. And we're not going to change this. Do you think for one second Antifa, Resist, and all these other communist causes are going to lay down for us? Of course not. We have to fight for it. Well, you know, when it comes to the um, national popular vote, a lot of the um, congressional members we talked to on this radio show, they didn't think it was a great threat. Um, threat. And that really surprised me because um, it has great potential to usurp our Constitution. You know, if this thing, you know, if, if it goes through to enough um, states that they can um, usurp our, our election system. So, you know, I don't think they take it for real. And they, they're the ones who are the cowards and, 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 and don't want to fight. They're too busy wanting to compromise with the very um, political party that, that is destroying this country. How can you compromise with people who want to destroy you? Tell me, anybody. We have to, we have to primary them, Curtis. We have to have people like, like Annie, like yourself, like me, and others primary these people and we have to uh you think uh alexis ocasio cortez controls her they got her to run to get rid of whoever that uh pain in the booty establishment white guy was for the democratic cause he wasn't left enough and we need to do the same you know this is the anniversary of the tea party and uh, i was part of the beginning of that movement i know you were as well annie and i mean this is we need to have a second Tea Party revolution because we stand for what's right, and we will not lose. <laughs> but the fact is, we have to stand up and fight for it. I mean, I never realized. Yeah. Well, I I did, but I never realized to a point just how deep the state is in the establishment. I never, until Trump got elected, I never imagined it was this controlling. Absolutely. And behind Ocasio-Cortez is uh, George Soros, Tom Steyer, 
She's got the big bucks, and she's she's the one that rallied when she was being elected, saying, "I'm with the people. I want big money out of politics." And yet, she's raking in donations and hand over fist from the very people she said she wouldn't get it from, <laughs> from the lobbyists, funny, from the special Funny interest. how that works, and ain't it, Annie? <laughs> she's a fundraising machine. Oh yeah, she did. You know, I I say it, I say it without bolster bravado. A uh, cutie like her got her knees dirty, and she got where she's going, and she's nothing more than a little puppet for the fat cats. Uh, it's that simple. I mean, yeah, but the thing is, is I mean, look, Annie, I don't know if you remember, we had a guest talking about the Detroit public schools and the f- problems there. This was many years ago. Uh, his, I can't remember his name. But they rigged the uh, mayor's election so he wouldn't win. Tom Barrow was his name. But he talked about this congresswoman, Tlaib or whatever, about her and her group basically raped the Detroit public schools of all this money. They had sweetheart deals with vendors. And now look where this lady is. She's in Congress. I I mean, this woman should be in jail. Absolutely. And. She married her brother. Oh, but she didn't marry her brother. But she didn't divorce him either. <laughs> you married your own brother just to get here into the United States? Come on. I mean, there's so much hanky-panky going on on that side. It's, and it, had it been a Republican that did it, that person would be wearing those orange coveralls and be sitting behind bars right now. But because it was a Democrat and a Muslim woman, Democrat, and I probably I'm going to get the Southern Poverty Law on me, as well as care and everything else. And oh, by the way, I just may get a notice from either Twitter or BTR or something like that that uh, I'm under could be arrested. Get a hold of my attorney who's under Pakistani Sharia law. I just violated Sharia law by calling out a Muslim woman like Michelle Malcolm. Did you catch that one? Twitter sent no. a notification what? to what Michelle this? Malcolm. Sent a notification to Michelle Malcolm. You better get a hold of your attorney because you violated Pakistan's Sharia law. She posted up uh, cartoons dealing with Islam and Mohammed. And because <laughs> Pakistani's Sharia law, uh, she could be arrested and brought up for trial for blasphemy. <laughs> Either that or they put a pop right out on her. I'm an American here in the United States. Oh, Twitter did. And Michelle Malcolm says, I'm not going to shut up. So she reposted Twitter's notification to her up on Twitter. She's going, this is going up to two point something million of my followers. (laughs) Good work, Michelle. God bless you for that. No, I'll have to look that up. That is... Uh, God forbid we offend any of these countries that pretty much hate us. Mm. Now, um, I'm trying to remember because uh, the person that founded Twitter does no longer owns majority shares of it. It does come back to, uh, I don't know if it's a Saudi Arabian or a Pakistani that that now owns it. So uh, majority owned is by a Muslim on Twitter, folks. Mhm. So, and I like what you're the, kidding me. Bigfoot wow. said, <laughs> "Yep, yeah." So find, mm-hmm. I'll see if I can find Michelle Malcolm's article, but uh, it's it's really funny what she's what she did. 
It might have been up on Tea Party Org. It could have been. See if I can find it. But uh, if, if you think about it, so far this is a big race to the left. A year from now, right now, okay, it's it's March one, March one, two thousand twenty or twenty twenty, when you're doing the show. How far to the left are these people going to be? I mean, they're literally going to be waving communist flags, talking about free everything. They're going to be wearing outfits like yeah, for the, uh, Castro. <laughs> <laughs> and I did find uh, the article from Michelle Malcolm. It is up on Tea Party Org. I just posted it up in the chat room. Um, and it reads uh, Malcolm was shocked to learn that Twitter would even consider holding her accountable for breaking Islamic law. This was originally posted in Big League Politics. Author and political commentator Michelle Malcolm received a bizarre message from t- Twitter telling to seek legal counsel for allegedly violating Pakistani law. Uh, I've been hashtag Silicon Valley Sharia. Here's the notice Twitter's legal department sent me last week warning me to get legal counsel because anti-blasphemy Muslim zealots complained that my Mohammed cartoon tweet violates Pakistan's law, she wrote. Um, she posted a photo of the email from the microblogging giant that told her that a 2015 tweet is a violation of Pakistan law. The tweet in question features cartoon drawings of the false Islamic prophet Mohammed. Um, I'm trying to see where it says uh, the ownership of it. She responded back, as a U.S. citizen subject to American laws, not Pakistan's or Mohammed's, I'll now retweet my... Mo cartoons and columns to 2.1 million followers every day and stand with free speech and free thought. How about you at Twitter, at Jack, she said. So um, here it goes. Prince Alawid bin Talal bin Abduzi. I can't even say this whole name, uh, of Saudi Arabia. So it's a Saudi Arabian prince owns the largest shares of Twitter. And Jack Dorsey is no longer the majority, owns more uh, shares than Jack Dorsey. Wow. Who was Jack Dorsey? Well, there we I go, know, obviously, he used to be the majority, but who was he? Did he make his money he doing was the social one that media? Founded, or? He's the one that founded Twitter. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, she's right. right. We're operating under Uh, United States laws and not (laughs) any other outside countries' laws. So I wouldn't worry about it too much, even though the Muslim community, um, they do take offense to anything you say that's negative against Muhammad. And like I said, um, they will be quick to um, put out a fatwa against you. You know, if you put up any images of the prophet, they consider, you know, God's number one. What difference should it make? Well, you know, what, <laughs> well, what could happen is that someone may get it into their heads to take action against her. Um, if a fatwa is put out on her, the, uh, what they've done to Charlie Hebdo. And, um, and the Santana verses, author. Yeah, the Satanic verses, yeah. Yeah, Rushi or whatever his name is. Yeah. They've taken down a lot of players, I mean, big time. Bill O'Reilly, uh, you know, 
the one guy, the first guy to go was the guy they said was grabbing all these girls, trying to get with them. I forgot his name, but they can, I mean, they're, they're strong. They own the media. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, if, if a fault was put out against her, then it places her life in jeopardy portion of it. So Curtis, it looks like we got your friend in Derek in on the line. Let me bring him in and welcome aboard Derek Hankerson, uh, yes. producer of the Golden Geechee Florida film. Good afternoon, Derek. How are you doing today? <clears throat> I'm great. How are you today? Hey, Derek. Hi, Curtis. How are you? I'm all right. I'm doing fine. You and saying... I thank you for joining me up on LinkedIn. Sure. Thank you for the Go ahead. opportunity to thank you for the opportunity to be with y'all today. Yeah, it's raining over here. And as I told you, <laughs> well, it's getting raining over here in South Carolina. As oh, I told you up on LinkedIn, I happen to live in in the Gullah Geechee Carter, you know, the heart of it. And I made a mistype. Uh, I should have said sweet grass baskets. I said sweetgrass. I don't know what <laughs> I was thinking, Doy. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. So, how are things in no matter, South Carolina? How are things in South Carolina where you live? Uh, well, we're paddling along as always. Unfortunately, we've got right. a Democrat re- representing us. I lost Mark Sanford to uh, Joe Beercan Cunningham, uh, but we'll make right. do. We'll, we'll, we'll get back. Matter of yeah. fact, uh, so, I was just reminded it's been t- ten years of the Tea Party this year. I didn't realize we've been doing that battle for that long. You were a Tea Party leader, as I am here. Uh, congratulations on surviving this long. <laughs> Thank you so much. It, um, when you have people like Curtis and other wonderful people who live in Putnam County, which has a rich African-American history to include, Putnam County is the home county of Asa. Uh, or A. Philip Randolph, and also it's the home of Mary McLeod Bethune and the start of Bethune-Cookman College in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. So Putnam County is is a rural county. Uh, It is a conservative rural county, but families, of all different backgrounds have, have survived in the county by, by by working together. And as I was saying, when you have great people like Curtis on your side, you know, um, he's the type of person that speaks his mind, and uh, I'm glad I never had to hear it. Well, you know what? <laughs> you know I do what? once a week. <laughs> we did yeah. manage to um, flip the county, um when I was vice chairman of the Republican right. Executive R-E-P. Committee, That's we right. were behind like 6,000 um, registered Democrat voters, and now we lead them by, um, wow, over 1,000. And not only that, there's no more constitutional um, 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 golly, officers, officers, yeah, officers? in the county. They're all, all Republicans now, yeah. That's right. That's right. And oh, proud um, of that. back yeah, back during the time that I was talking about A. Philip Randolph and also Mary McLeod, Putnam County was democratic. So 
it's it, 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 a round of applause to the Putnam County REC and Tea Party for flipping a county Art. that has been that has Stand been up. traditionally traditionally democratic since 1900s. <laughs> so so tell us some more about your goal well, he, of heritage. You have a, a, a personal connection to the Gullah community. Yes, sir, I do. I am a direct descendant. I'm my father's mother, my grandmother was West African and she was from Walterboro, South Carolina. And my great grandfather who was native to Tennessee was also West African. So I have two relatives who are literally from West Africa and having growing up having grown up in a family that shared a lot of oral tradition I was always mesmerized when I would hear stories of our family to include Native American stories to include European stories but I got to the point where those stories became boring because those stories were in the history textbooks the stories about the Gullahs and the Geechees and the South Carolinas, the North Carolinas, the Georgias, the Floridas, the survival, the maroon communities, the militias that were started by by West and Central Africans, the freedom and independence that was earned by West Africans on their own before there was a President Abraham Lincoln or before there was a civil rights bill. I always found mesmerizing, and I never saw them in the history textbooks, so I figured somebody was hiding something and i came to i came to realize that the something that someone was hiding was the 268 years of florida history that's missing from american history textbooks to date when i was back in school i read nothing about florida but florida or shall i say the spanish and africans contributed more to the new world than the British, but the British won. So what I learned was from a very young age that the winners get to write the history. So that's how, that's how I um, came to produce a number of different films on the Gullah, the Gullah culture. It's, it's, it's a direct lineage, and I wanted to tell my own story. So we've been able to do that. Well, you know, the Gullah Geechee uh, culture is the West African culture of the slaves that came here and then the free people. And here, again, in South Carolina, like Florida, we have a really rich history. You know, Harriet Tubman right. yeah. from here, Buford County. Right. Uh, Robert That's Smalls. Right. How many people know who Robert Smalls was? He was a slave who was on a Confederate vessel, was able to capture the vessel, free his, his fellow slaves, yeah. and then... Yeah. Captain that vessel for the Union Army. He was elected yeah. to Congress several times. When then, then again, there's the stories about his multiple wives here in Beaufort County. But there's a the lot of heritage that no one knows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when the Emancipation true. Proclamation was read on January 1st, when it was read, the 
word was sent out that everyone had to gather around the century oak, which is a live oak tree out in St. Helena here in Beaufort County. And every Mm -hmm. slave that could make it to that oak and hear the Emancipation Proclamation read would be freed. And people traveled from miles around to come here. Uh, The first education center put up for free blacks, Penn Center, the first free black village, Mitchellville, out here in Hilton Head in Beaufort County. And this is all heritage that people don't know. They don't know. The very church that I go to, the parish of St. Helena, was a union hospital during the Civil War. And all the rich white people fled when the Union Army marched in, which is why Beaufort was never burned to the ground by Sherman. Uh, the church that? Uh, that was burned in Gone with the Wind is an actual church. It is our serenity chapel of my church. It still exists, and we have an Easter mass, mass there uh, two weeks after Easter, once a year. It still exists. It's up in Old Sheldon. There's a rich Gullah heritage that no one is learning about. And we have here the Gullah Festival once a year out in St. Helena where they block off the entire area around Martin Luther King Boulevard with the traditional uh, dancing, dress, uh, crafts, and oral history being told. And this is things that are not being told, and I'm glad you came out with this film. Thank you for doing this. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. I, um, Like I said, we're just inspired by these stories. And I never saw the stories in my history textbooks in Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and throughout the world who have found American history interesting. The slice of pie, the slice of pie that I like to focus on as we're talking about is that of relatives, uh, of, of those people, relatives and those people who contributed to America. And it is said that more people don't want to know their own history. But, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And here's what I have learned. I will be accounted for what I did while I was here. Not what other people did, but what I did. So from a Christian standpoint, that's how I look at my life. That's how I look at my work. And I am going to continue to maximize my God-given talent with no excuses. Now, I have not been able to view the film, but I was watching different clips and stuff. Uh, and listening to other people talk about your film. Uh, I saw an interview you did also uh, about the film. Tell us about it and how you put it together, because it involves also bicycling along the East Coast Greenway. It does. It does. When I was a young boy, my, uh, (laughs) my grandmother was very stoic. She didn't laugh a lot, didn't joke a lot, but somehow... I could always make her laugh, and I would come from the Washington, D.C. area to visit with my grandmother and other relatives in St. Augustine because that's where my family is made it to. And I remember a conversation we were having, and she said to me, and I quote, Grandson, I swear, I hope, I hope you become an actor because you sure are such a ham. So that has... <laughs> <laughs> that I have kept that nugget in the back of my mind, in the back of my computer for some 40 years. And 
the first opportunity that we had to produce a documentary on the Gullah Geechee culture was when I hosted and sponsored the National Park Service's 6th Annual Underground Railroad. And during conference, we partnered with the Florida Channel out of Florida State University, and we were able to co-produce the Underground Railroad story, which is a story about the original Underground Railroad, which headed south to Spanish Florida, and how those Western Central Africans traveled 377 miles from the British chattel slave system of the Carolinas to the Spanish slave system in the territory of Florida, and they earned their freedom when they crossed the border from Georgia to Florida. And that started, really, that started happening in about 1610. But we have to keep in mind, and I'm getting to your question, but we have to keep in mind that Africans came with the Spanish explorers starting in 1513. And in fact, there were two blacks on the ship. One of the blacks is named Juan Guiardo. He introduced wheat to the New World. The second wave, which came in 1565 with 800 explorers that settled San Augustine, St. Augustine, which was named on September 8, 1565, after a North African by the name of San Augustine of Hippo Regis. He was the most influential theologian in the New World. So Florida, St. Augustine, was the birthplace of Christianity in the New World and the birthplace of militias and military service. And in fact, the Florida National Guard is headquartered in St. Augustine because St. Augustine is the oldest occupied European settlement in North America settled in 1565 because we had a militia. More to your question, the first film focused on the park uh, conference, the Underground Railroad Conference. It focused on the culture, focused on the food, and it focused on the story of the Underground Railroad heading south to the Bahamas. In 2015, Armstrong, which was settled in 1889, was settled by West Africans after William Tecumseh Sherman initiated his scorched earth policy. He confiscated 400,000 acres, Confederate acres, and um, it came under the auspices of Order Number 15. That also created the Freedmen's Bureau, which was an opportunity for ministers and business leaders to meet and decide what to do with this property for these newly freed slaves, and hence was created 40 acres and a mule. There's two communities in Florida that benefited from 40 acres and a mule. That's Lincolnville, which was settled in 1889, was originally named Little Africa and Armstrong. So the second film in 2015 had a railhead designation of the East Coast Greenway. And I had just wanted to capture or create a three-minute video, just a teaser. But what wound up happening, I started realizing that this East Coast Greenway was a much bigger piece of pie uh, that I bit off. It was a much bigger piece of pie that I that I bit off, and I didn't realize that the East Coast Green. I didn't realize at the time how popular the East Coast Greenway was. And the East Coast Greenway, for your listeners, is the longest non-motorized trail in the United States. It extends from Key West, Florida, all the way up to 
all the way up to Maine. And it's connecting through Florida counties, and it's also connected to the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor. So I thought that I would try and do something unique with films, documentaries, which I've never seen done before. And that was to combine history, American history, West African culture, and also health and wellness to include cycling, to include equestrian, to include walking trails. So we were able to produce a 30-minute documentary. It's really a promotional piece for Florida. It's a promotional piece for St. John's County, for St. Augustine, and also it's a promotional piece for the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor, and it's a cultural piece, a cultural piece for my relatives who inspired me as a child who happened to be West African, and my family happens to be from a town that was named after North African. So this is something that I'd wanted to do as a kid. I served as one of two executive producers. I served as the director. I wrote the script, and I narrated the film. And I did all that because, again, I was inspired by I was inspired by the words that my West African grandmother said to me when I was a kid. So I thought her know how much I appreciate her and her culture that I would do more than just act in the film. So again, produced, directed, wrote the script, served as one of one of two executive producers. Um, worked with a wonderful cinematographer out of Johnson City, Tennessee, named Jeff Green, uh, worked with a wonderful communications director out of Wisconsin, Tamara Lee, and have a wonderful business partner who's up in Minnesota, who's from Janesville, Wisconsin, named Sherry Henry. They believed in me. They believed in the project. And we were able to take a three-minute concept and produce a 30-minute documentary, which, which will be available on iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon within the next 30 days. So that's, that's how it came about. Absolutely. And the beauty of the Gullah Geechee uh, culture is they rely heavily on tradition. They rely heavily on family and the pride fighting for freedom. Yep. It's something that people don't realize. Even when it comes up to New Year's Day here in South Carolina, we follow that tradition that the Gullah culture had. And every food that we prepare has a certain meaning, from the Hoppin' Johns to the Hog Jowls to the Collard Greens. Uh, it, it all has a meaning. And each part of it has to deal with freedom and for prosperity. Um, it, yeah. It is a very beautiful culture. And believe it or not, they do have their own dialect. And unless you they have do. an ear for it, sometimes you can't understand what they're saying. That's true. But, That's very uh, true. After a while, and you get to – matter of fact, Peter Cottontail was a book written based upon the Gullah Geechee culture. Um, and people well, don't realize that this I'm, has been woven into our history throughout the United I'm States. Not, most most stories were based on 
Originally, they were based on African Americans. The long, the Lone Ranger, that's based on a United States Marshal who happened to have been black. But those stories don't sell. Yes. So Hollywood had to change. Now, we, we had to had to change the character, and that's why documentaries. Exactly. That's why I produced a documentary instead of a full length film. Funny you mentioned the Lone Ranger because I don't know if Curtis told you that we start each show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And a number of years ago, I forget what the gentleman's name is, but he was a very famous Texas marshal, and we did our dedication yeah. to him. <laughs> Believe it yeah. or not, we knew the story. <laughs> yeah. But that's oh, the yeah. problem. History is not being taught. History is not well, being taught. I, and unfortunately, that means. I'm, not... I'm sorry. I'm not going to Go ahead. allow that to – I am not going to allow that to be an excuse because there's the Schomburg Library, there's the Public Library, there's the Library of Congress, there's a library in your community. People have, for whatever reason, have no interest in who they are. We all – a good majority of people want to be somebody else. They want bigger lips. They want bigger hips. They want to look younger. They want to look older. They're not happy with who they are. So we're all looking for different people. I am so blessed, like you and Curtis, that I grew up in a family who I knew who I was. I knew where I was from. I knew who my relatives were, and I knew what they did. I don't need to. And we should I don't need to grow up to be like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is already taken. I grew up to be like myself. And with that, I never compromised my principles. And I've been true to myself. And again, at the end of the road, I am going to be accounted by my Lord and Savior for, for the work that I did. So that's how I look at it. I am not using any excuse because there are no excuses. There are no more excuses in terms of an African-American president and an African-American first lady who happened to have been Gullah Geechee from Georgetown, South Carolina. I don't want to hear excuses. If people want to learn who they are, they can go to the library, get off your phone, and go to the library. Well, this is a problem we have because of the media, uh, because of our political leaders. Everyone wants to be someone else. Uh, and if you don't follow the herd mentality of that, then you're against it, and then you become every single name in the book they want to call Uncle you. Tom, and we've Uncle got to start Tom, thinking so as – Yeah, exactly. Like uh, – this poor woman that was uh, in the congressional hearing just the other day, uh, what her last name Hanson, I believe, uh, and Token she got Black. called every yeah called every single name in the book because you don't think like the rest of the herd. The United States of America was founded on the basic belief that we wanted to be independent, that we wanted mm-hmm. to be able to strive for what we desire, not what someone else tells right. us that we should be desiring, not for living the way someone else tells us to live for our independent mm-hmm. thought, for our freedom. Yep. And we've gotten away from that. Now we have to crawl to the government, the altar of government, instead of seeking the altar of God. We, we have sad. to believe that government is the only 
way for us to survive and not by what God and Christ have taught us that we are responsible for ourselves as well as for our fellow man, but to think independently and to behave justly. Now, we have to take a government handout. And this is what we're, our kids are being taught, and we've got to teach them right. And you are a historian. You are a, a Republican leader. You are a true conservative. And I thank you for the hard work of trying to get that message out with your books and your films. Thank you so much. As I'm sure you know, in certain instances, it has been similar to a salmon, salmon swimming upstream, five, bear, five bears on the banks ready to just take you to eat you. But uh, through the grace of God, through perseverance, through exactly what you just said, believing in my Lord and Savior and believing in my uh, uh, um, uh, God-given abilities, I was steadfast, uh, was determined, and had a lot of people and still have a lot of people around me who support and enjoy what we do. And I can tell you a fact that everyone who sees this film, regardless if they are, regardless who they are, they will love this film. They will love this film because it's faith-based. It's cross-cultural. It deals with health and wellness. It deals with water and waterways. It deals with Florida. It deals with tourism. And it's just a well-rounded production that highlights the beauty of Florida, highlights the beauty of combining nature outdoors and history and also ties in again to cycling in the East Coast Greenway. It's, it's, I'm just, I'm speechless with reference to this film will be available throughout the world for anyone to purchase on iTunes, Amazon, and Google. And it all started from a three minute video. I'm just beyond myself. And and as you can hear my voice, sometimes I get emotional about it because I'm beyond myself. I'm just wow! <laughs> I, can't, I can't I can't believe it. Really, I can't I hey, cannot believe it. Now I, I mean, it took you three years to film. Go yeah. ahead. Well, the, I'm so no, he was going to say something. Um, well, I know probably what he was going to say. And I, I, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but um, his production company is interested in um, making a video out of one of my political books by George the Radicals are back. Am I yes. right? You're you're absolutely correct. That is a project that we are very interested in. We're very interested in that production because many of those radical Republicans were former slaves themselves who were West African. Um, To include, and actually not just former slaves, but some of them were in the Confederacy and some of them were in the Union. In fact, the first congressman in the state of Florida, his name is Josiah T. Walls. He fought in the Confederate Army and the Union Army, and he was the first – he was a slave, and he was the first congressman of Florida. But you wouldn't know that 
because that's not anywhere in Florida literature, nor is there a portrait or a picture of him at the at the at the uh, uh, George Bush Center in Tallahassee, where he should be. Uh, and he was mayor of Gainesville, Florida. Right, he was mayor of Gainesville, Florida, before he became congressman. Right. So, um, a lot of history that's been withheld. Yeah. Yeah, but see, Curtis, that's wonderful though. Because it gives us an opportunity to do what we're trying to do. That's how I oh, yeah. come to look at it. I've come to look at it. I've tried to come to look at it very positively. May yeah. I ask a question to the guest? Um, sure. Go ahead, Mike. Your history, your history is amazing. Two questions. Um, yes, number sir. one is kind of current political. Do you think one of the re- you had mentioned how proud you are of yourself and? Uh, I actually got emotional listening to you when uh, you got emotional talking about your family. That must be amazing to be able to write this, to be able to film this, direct this, uh, knowing this is your family history. That's got to be emotional. But do you think that's one of the reasons uh, today's indoctrination is who you are, you know, shame? And uh, do you think that's part of it? Secondly, um, why do you think it's erased from history when we know an awful lot of history? Nothing is perfect, but what you just said is very educational to the mind. People should know this. Um, they should. You probably got relatives that don't know this. So, I mean, go ahead. I'm I sorry. do. No, no, no. Those are, those are two great questions. I, um, I believe that people, thanks to what, others and ourselves have done thanks to Dr. Henry Louis Gates who has this show Finding Your Roots thanks to 23andMe thanks to Ancestry.com I think, I believe that more and more people are finding learning about their history interesting here's why they might have straight hair but their granddaughter they might be fair skin and straight hair but their granddaughter has curly hair and has got olive skin. So the grandchildren start asking, or the child start asking, hey, where are we from? And it's become a lot easier instead of utilizing oral tradition, it's become a lot easier just to take some, take some slob, I'll put it in a tube and send it off. And I believe people are becoming more and more interested in, in, their, in their own history. I also, when I say... I didn't mean to say I'm proud of myself. What I meant to say is I'm proud of myself because I sat and listened to my parents and other relatives when they were talking about America and they were talking about our history, and they never sold out, and I'm never going to sell out. That's what I meant to say. Not that I'm proud of my. I am proud of myself that I didn't sell out, but I'm more proud that I had parents who were educated, who were determined, who didn't make excuses, who didn't take resources or assistance from uh, uh, the federal government when things were bad in the household. That's what I meant to say. Wow. I hope that answers. Well, I hope that, that answers. answers sure. That answers everything. Wow. Yeah. Annie, well, when are you going to start next filming? Oh. Well, we got okay. our next guest in on the line. Uh, Derek, I don't know if you could hang out with us. Uh, he's a state representative, Mike Hill, from Florida. So um, I think 
three Florida guys on the phone should be a lot of fun oh. to work with. Let's bring a boy. We all know, we all know well, each other. Let me, let me say this about Mike Hill. I am so proud of Mike Hill because Mike Hill, State Representative, Florida State Representative Mike Hill has recently introduced, which I hope he talks about, a new piece of legislation, House Bill 97, and it supports the concept of what we were talking about earlier, what I left out, and the two films that I was talking about earlier is, in both films, we always reference Fort Mose, and Fort Mose is the first free the first free black settlement in North America, and it was established in 1738, my point. West West Central African Native Americans were fighting for freedom and independence in the territory of Florida 36 years before the American Revolution. So I'm glad that Mike has the courage, the determination to introduce a piece of legislation that supports all veterans and supports all veterans' monuments because things are starting to get really out of hand with reference to tearing down monuments and desecrating monuments and uh, Americans not learning their history or, or their feelings prevent them from understanding the concept of history. And the Civil War was not just one individual battle. As I said, black men had been fighting for freedom and independence since 1738. I think that's like 150 years before the Civil War. I also think we had a couple of other battles and wars in between there, French-American, Spanish-American, Mexican-American. So are you going to tell me that the Civil War was a war about race, but all those other wars with French and Mexicans and Indians and blacks weren't about race or Vietnam or World War I or World War II? Hey, all the wars are not just about race. It's about policy. It's about procedures. It's about rights. And I am blessed that Mike is, is, is committed to the principle, just like the men who fought for the North and the South, committed to principle of supporting veterans. So that's all I have to say about Mike Hill. And Curtis is right. Uh, uh, Mike Hill, Curtis, and I are, are very good friends. Well, Derek, well, thank you so much for those kind words. It's the truth. Oh, oh man. Well, welcome aboard, Mike, and how are you I, today? I, I, will, I will hang out with you, but I'm going to put my phone on mute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mike. Oh, man. Welcome back to the show, our friend Mike Hill. Oh, man. This is going to be, this is one show I have no control over today. <laughs> Uh, nice to have you back, Mike. And tell us about this legislation uh, that uh, Derek was hawking for you. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me, uh, Annie and Curtis. It's always a treat to be on your show. And Derek was so eloquent in how he just explained my bill. And essentially what my bill says is that um, all uh, the title of the bill is Heroes and Soldiers Memorials and Monuments Protection Act. And what it does is it protects all cenotaphs for those veterans, for law enforcement, for astronauts, and citizens who um, were a big help in the war effort for all of our military conflicts, starting way back with the uh, Anglo-American War, which was fought from 
Um, the next conflict that we mention is the Battle of Fort Mose, and I will have to admit that it was thanks to uh, Derek that that was included in the bill because originally it was not. And then when uh, Derek told me about that magnificent event that took place, that battle at Fort Mose, I amended the bill to include that battle as part of the, the bill, part of the conflict, and justifiably so. Uh, because it does protect all memorials, statues, and so forth. And in St. Augustine, um, there is a Fort Mose Museum, and there is a monument that's been erected there um, in, in a recognition of that battle. So the, the bill goes on to list, of course, a number of major conflicts that have taken place um, with American soldiers and veterans including the uh, French-American War, the, the Mexican War, uh, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, I know I'm not saying them in order, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, uh, World Wars I and II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all the way up to our current conflict. It also lists the Bay of Pigs invasion, because as I have done my research putting this bill together, that in Little Havana in Miami, there is a Bay of Pigs uh, memorial monument that is uh, erected there for those brave men who were at one time Cuban refugees, became American citizens, and then wanted to go back to fight for their country to free it. And it, it was a, an attempt that was not successful, but there is a memorial there uh, recognizing them. So there are these memorials, not only across Florida, but all across our U.S. And as Derek mentioned, they have recently come under attack. And the attack has been a lot more aggressive uh, since there was that senseless shooting of the young man of the church members in South Carolina. You'll recall that about three or four years ago where he went into their Bible study on a Wednesday night, and, and uh, it was a white young man who was uh, very mentally unstable, deranged, as most of those mass shooters are, um, and killed those people who were there for their Wednesday night Bible study. Then when they were doing some research to find out who this young man was, they found a picture on Facebook where he had wrapped himself in uh, what a lot of people call the Confederate flag, which as I've learned from my friend Derek, is uh, nothing more than a, um, a take off on the Spanish flag, which was flown at Fort Mose. They're very similar. So he had himself wrapped in that Confederate flag. Well, there is this small minority on the left who for some reason have it in their mind if they want to divide, destroy, and cause destruction in this country, use that as a rallying point, and again, it's a small minority, to use it as a rallying point to try and tear down anything that had any resemblance to the Civil War. And uh, some terrible things happened there. Again, it's, I think it was South Carol Charleston, South Carolina, where that they yep. had the two groups which squared off, and a, a gentleman drove his vehicle into the crowd, killing one woman. Oh no, that was I mean, uh, North. That was Charlotte, North Carolina. 
Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina. And so since then, we have seen this cry mainly coming from the disgraced Southern Poverty Law Center, who has identified these monuments, these memorials, these statues all over the U.S. and has demanded that they come down. And unfortunately, too many in the community, I would say the, the government communities, either at the state, I'm sorry, not the state, at the city or county level, will capitulate to these demands and will start removing these statues or, or, and taking them down or putting them to, moving them to other places. So what my bill says is that you're not going to do that anymore, that instead these monuments are a part of our history. The good part of our history becomes our heritage, our legacy. The bad part the, is what we learn from so that we don't repeat it. But we are not going to tear down these monuments because a small radical group says that we are waging psychological warfare on them and reminding them of slavery, and they just can't take it when they walk by or drive by it, which is complete and utter nonsense. Because some of those statues and memorials have been there for decades, some for over 100 years. And now, all of a sudden, in the past three years, is psychological warfare uh, uh, waged on you and that um, it, they must come down um, because it reminds you of slavery? Well, I would say if it does remind you of slavery, uh, it's, even, it's all the more why we should keep it because now we know we don't want to repeat that horrible past. When you tear it down, you try to tear down any remembrance of it, it doesn't mean that the event never happened. It is still there, so we need to learn from it, not try and tear it down and, and make an attempt to erase it from our historical memory. You know, it, it's so much easier if we just simply put a plaque on the monument to explain the history of it and then say that this is here to remember that we never go down that path again. Take this as a lesson to learn to your heart. You know, why can't we do something as simple as that rather than destroy? Well, Annie, you know, most of them do have a plaque on them explaining why they're there. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, here in Pensacola, oh, by the way, they're not just trying to tear down those monuments that were erected as part of the Civil War, which, by the way, in Florida, we have statues erected for soldiers from the north and from the south um, have, are, are in uh, Florida. But just to prove that it's not just about the Civil War, here in Pensacola, we have a Minuteman monument, which, of course, references the Revolutionary War. That was recently desecrated. We also have here, we call it a Veterans Square, we also have a monument um, erected for recipients of Purple Hearts. It's the Purple Heart Memorial. So, of course, the Purple Heart is awarded to those who are wounded in combat um, fighting for this nation. Someone recently desecrated that monument. So it's not just about those associated with the Civil War. It's just the left wanting some excuse, as minuscule or lame as it could be, to cause destruction 
to, to be anarchist, to try and create uh, 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 anger and division in this nation. I don't understand that mindset, but that's where they are. So that being said, um, um, uh, we, we had a group that demanded that the Confederate Memorial here in Pensacola be removed. And someone said, Mike, what do you think about that? I said, what memorial? They said the Confederate Memorial that is on Palafox Street, our most prominent street here in downtown Pensacola. I said, I've never seen it. I've lived in Pensacola since 1995. I said, where is it? They said, it's right across the street from First Baptist Church. So I drove over there. And to my amazement, there was a 30-foot-tall Confederate memorial that I had never seen driven by it a thousand times. So I said, oh, my goodness. And so <laughs> on that memorial were several names etched on it. So I just did a little homework, a little research, um, something that my good friend Derek Hankerson does all the time. I just did a little bit of research about this Confederate memorial, found out it was erected in 1891 with private funds. And the reason it was erected is because during many battles uh, during the Civil War, sons, brothers, husbands, fathers would leave to go off to battle and never be heard from again. Nobody knew what happened to them. Were they killed in action, missing in action, did they desert? Did they, nothing. They just did not know what happened to them. So these families got together and as a way of bringing closure to the wounds of that war and the fact that they lost their loved one, they said, let's erect this memorial and write their names on there. Let's etch those names of those who are lost. We have no idea where they are, what happened to them. So it's a monument much like our Vietnam memorial. When I study that history and what it meant, I said, no, you're not going to tear down this memorial. There are still families who live here whose relatives' names are etched on that memorial. And you have no right to desecrate it, to remove that uh, monument of what they were trying to do to bring closure to the wounds of that war. So I, 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 I made sure that that was not going to be removed. And you wouldn't believe the um, hate mail and phone calls that I received because here's my kill protecting the Confederate Memorial. Um, and my response is if you do a little bit of homework, if you study the history, I think you would understand why it needs to remain also. Wonderful, wonderful. I see people popping up into the studio. Uh, if you're listening in on your smart device, thank you. If you want to ask uh, Mike Hill a question, please press 1. That way I know that you have a contribution to the show. Otherwise, my assumption is that you are listening. Uh, I have a question, Mike, there's Annie, someone I here can... that I... Oh, go ahead, Annie. Go ahead, Sorry. Mike. to Mike. Yeah. No, uh, go ahead, Mike to Mike. First, okay. Thank you for serving. Uh, two quick questions. Yeah, um, I'm in Michigan, so obviously you see the news, you hear the, uh, you, you you don't know exactly what's going on in Florida. What was everybody's obsession with that socialist mayor from Tallahassee who was talking about giving people all these free handouts that in no way humanly possible could even exist, uh, blah, blah, blah. Secondly, um, in the end, we were always hearing from the news 
how the race was so close, it was so close. Actually, he got his booty handed to him. Um, did that surprise you? Because um, it almost seems like the media tried to say Texas and Florida have now turned blue. Right. Well, I'll say this much, that the race was much closer than it should have been. And the reason it was, so you're referring to Andrew Gillum, who is a uh, disgraced ex-mayor of Tallahassee, who was under investigation as we speak for ethics violation of how he was receiving uh, funds uh, uh, in violation of Florida law uh, for various trips that he was taking to Costa Rica, uh, to see the Hamilton play, and, and so forth. In fact, one of his uh, city managers uh, has been indicted um, for ethics violations and how he was spending money the wrong way. Well, uh, that race with uh, Andrew Gillum and our current governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, was closer than it should have been because of this reason. We are doing a horrible job of educating our young people. Um, from the K through 12 into the university system, where too many people in the coming out of colleges nowadays believe that socialism is a good thing, that it is something that should replace our capitalistic society. Um, we have done them a terrible disservice by making them believe that. These liberal college professors, which should be fired in my mind, are teaching these children the wrong thing. They are not giving them all the facts. And so because of that, he had a, uh, a big following of those who wanted to vote for him. Here is a shocker, a reason why he lost that race. One of the reasons why he lost that race is because a large number of black women did not vote for him. Instead, they voted for uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and their reason for voting for DeSantis is because DeSantis was for school choice. And Gillum, of course, being on the left and in the pockets of the uh, teachers union, was, was firmly against school choice. And because of that, over 100,000 black women voted for uh, DeSantis, and that was a margin of victory for him to become our governor. You know, that's just that's a funny statistic there because there's a recent report that was out in the news that suburban voters that had voted for Obama both times are now switching over to the GOP. And these are probably the very people, uh, Curtis, that you were registering to vote. And they're saying they're returning to the GOP. Are they suddenly realizing they've got buyer's remorse? Well, Annie, what, what I am hearing is that the reason why they are returning to the GOP it's because of the GOP and Donald Trump's insistence that we build the wall. They want secure borders, and that is why they are switching over to the GOP. That is the single largest uh, issue with those uh, suburban voters, is they are uh, wanting security, because we're seeing the destructive nature of having those open borders of uh, illegal drugs coming in, criminals. Um, the human sex trafficking is horrific, and, and, and as a nation, we need to stop it. And so because of that, they are leaving the uh, Democrat Party and coming to the Republican Party. And I believe because of that, and also because the Republican Party, a light has been, been shown on them, shined, I think, on them, 
because of their acceptance of infanticide. We've seen it. Their acceptance of uh, socialism and their acceptance of uh, illegal immigration. And I think they are going to lose in 2020 by a landslide. Uh, President Trump and the others in the Republican Party has exposed them for what they really are. And at first, it was just saying that's a, a portion of a minority on the radical left. But no, we're seeing it right now in the U.S. Congress, in the House, that it is a majority of the Democrats who are that way, and it's going to cost them in 2020. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. From your lips to God's ears. You know, there's so many attacks being made against Trump uh, and his policies. But what really bothers me is the increased t- attacks on anyone wearing a mega hat. Suddenly now it's, it's the greatest sin, the greatest crime you can ever have is to walk out in public wearing a Make America Great hat again. You know, you have kids going to school and being attacked in the corridors. You have people being banned from restaurants. And this has gone a little bit too far. Isn't there now time that we should classify this type of a, a hate crime? Absolutely. It should be a hate crime. Now, here's something else, if you'll notice about that, uh, Annie, is those who are being attacked are the vulnerable. Um, they're usually younger, they're kids, they're women. And they're being attacked by usually males, a couple of females. We have seen the YouTube videos of them acting uh, ridiculous also. Now, I have a Make America Great Again hat. And I wear it. I'm six foot two, 235 pounds. Nobody says a word to me. So it, it's a <laughs> cowardly attack on those who are vulnerable. But it, it indeed needs to be uh, challenged as a hate crime because they're doing it purely out of hatred, no other reason. Now that seems to be, but it's getting worse and worse. As a matter of fact, the one woman that did that on the YouTube video um, that attacked the guy in the Mexican restaurant, she was here illegally, so I turned around and scooped her up. Good for you, I thank you for doing a good job. Uh, she got what she deserved. Now, uh, another thing is, just recently, Colorado passed their resolution or legislation for the popular vote, taking the Electoral College and having them vote for whatever the national popular vote. So in other words, Colorado, it doesn't matter how the citizens voted. If the majority of them voted for the Republican and the national popular vote went to the Democrat, your vote doesn't count. Now, is there another attempt in Florida to bring this forward, or has it been killed permanently? Well, those on the left are probably going to try and file legislation to do that here in Florida. It's not going anywhere. It, 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 that, that, that's dead on arrival. And, again, the people in Colorado, uh, you have to attribute that to the poor education that they have there. They do not even understand the purpose of the Electoral College, why it is so brilliant, and why we need to keep it. They haven't been taught that. And so you have a majority of their population deciding that that's what they want to do, which is ridiculous. It's utter nonsense. Um, I would like to see it go the other way here in Florida, where um, when it comes time to um, how our electoral college, let me say it differently. 
when we are electing our statewide officials, such as our governor, our um, ag commissioner, our chief financial officer, and so forth, I would like to see a similar system of the Electoral College be brought in Florida so that each county will be able to have a voice in this whole thing. Whereas now, those statewide um, uh, elections, they spend most of their time in Broward, Miami-Dade, or along what we call the I-4 corridor between Tampa and Orlando, um, because that's where such a large population base is. But if we had something like an electoral college where each county, there are 67 counties, gets one vote, and that vote's going to depend on the majority of the people in that county, how they vote, then even a small county such as Leon County or my own Escambia County, you have to pay attention to it and go campaign there um, because it becomes a vital part of one of the 67 votes that's needed. Um, but I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'll be successful at that um, because it takes an educated populace to want to vote for something like that. It may even take a change to your constitution, too, for the state of Florida. Because I know here in South Carolina, we lost the seat for District 1 because of Charleston and Charleston alone. The rest of the of the district had all voted for Katie Arrington, but Charleston alone carried the entire district. And that's, And people don't understand that. Now, you and I discussed this once before. Here in South Carolina, we passed a law that stated that anyone in a higher education, a college or university that's attending must learn the founding documents, including the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We've now brought that down to the high school level also. So I asked you before if you thought that would be some sort of legislation you would want to uh, pass in Florida. Well, actually, that's in Florida right now at the high school level that they must take a civics um, course which does teach about our Constitution and about the founding of this nation. So that, that's required. What I have also co-sponsored this year, I tried to be the primary sponsor, but I was too late. I was beaten by this um, black female Democrat named Kimberly Daniels. She's awesome. She's a pastor of a church. She filed legislation a day before I did, which says that the Bible will be taught in our public schools that it would be an elective course, both the Old and New Testament, and its uh, impact on our culture and on our history. So I'm a co-sponsor of that bill now, and the reason why I think that bill is so important is because when you are taught the Bible, then you are taught wisdom. And that is what we are so lacking right now in our university system and also in our K-12 through system is wisdom. Um, they're given knowledge and sometimes the wrong knowledge, but wisdom is what they need and the Bible is what teaches that. So that bill has been filed. We'll see if it goes anywhere. Um, I think anyone who is of courage uh, would support it because what it, what it shows is that a willingness to um, uh, look at what has been profoundly impactful on this nation, which was founded as a Christian nation, and I would challenge anyone who would like to debate me on that. Mike. <laughs> I'd love Mike, to I see got that a question one. for you. 
do you think there would be any benefit um, to repeal the 17th Amendment whereby um, senators are elected versus the state, you know, sending senators to Washington to represent the um, interests of the state? Absolutely. I would like to see the 17th Amendment repealed and the 16th Amendment, which of course imposed the income tax. But that 17th Amendment was disastrous because what it did was instead of the Florida legislature choosing our senators, which means that they would have to be beholden to the state, they are now with this popular vote they are elected. They go to Washington, D.C., and they don't make decisions that would be most beneficial to their state, which goes back to our 10th Amendment, that the power belongs to the state and to the people, but instead they make their decisions based on more of a national level and what big business, what big lobbyists, what global interests have instead of being uh, loyal to their own state. So uh, that would be huge to have that 17th Amendment repealed, and I, I would be all for it. But I'll tell you who would not be for it, and that those are the current senators in Congress. Well, Mike, it has been a pleasure having you with us and having Derek on with you also. we got our next guest up in the bullpen, and I want to thank you for joining us. And, of course, you and Derek are welcome back anytime. Well, thank you, Annie. It's always a pleasure being with you and Curtis. I love your show. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay, (laughs) Okay. have a good day. All right, Mike Hill, check out. His website is VoteMikeHill.com. I didn't mention that, VoteMikeHill.com. Welcoming aboard our next victim, if my computer will behave here, and here we go, Karen Strahan. Girl writes what? Good afternoon, Karen, and welcome back. Thank you for having me back on this absolutely frigid March 1st. Oh my goodness. It's uh, minus 13 Fahrenheit here. So I'm just hoping that I'm just hoping that 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 whole saying about March and lions and lambs holds true because we just had the coldest February uh, in 40 years here in Edmonton where I am. And uh, you know that that kind of cold where salt doesn't work uh, doesn't do anything. Sand doesn't even stick because the snow packs so hard and cold. Um, and uh, and everybody just wishes that they were dead. So, <laughs> like so literally, I was listening warming, to the. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, well, I was listening to an expert on the radio the other day, and he was saying, yeah, we're probably going to have a massive die-off of deer, elk, and moose, and, you know, the owls and the coyotes are starving, and the only animals that are really doing well are the mice and voles, because they're all under the ice crust uh, on top of the snow, you know, and uh, but nobody else can get to their food, and, you know, birds will start dropping dead out of the trees any minute, so, which I guess would convince them maybe to stop pooping on my car, but, you know... It's it's been it it's been quite the February. I'll just let you know that. <laughs> the sky's falling. The sky's falling. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Oh, oh man, it's terrible. Oh, my heart does go out to you because we've got you got a fellow Canadian in our chat room. Also, Kel 
uh, from the Global Patriot Radio. She's been listening in. She's up in the Toronto area, so I'm sure she's she's enjoying the weather just as much as you are. Plus, we have a listener in from Alaska also, so they know what the cold is. But I'm going to just oh, there you put go. my thumb in there and say, it's nice 70 outside. <laughs> so. The world is going crazy, Karen, and every time I have you on here, more and more crazy things are happening. Recently, we just had Valentine's Day, and now I heard there's an anti-men's holiday out there, Galentine's Day. How crazy is that? Well, it's, I mean, it started out not crazy. It started out as kind of a nice, sweet idea. It was, you know, Leslie Nope from the character from Parks and Recreation, she was just like, Okay, on February 13th, that's when I get together, you know, with with all of my closest girlfriends, right, whether we have relationships or not, whether we're in relationships or not, and we all just get together for draw, uh, for brunch, and we drink some mimosas, and we eat some frittatas, and, and, uh, and we give each other gifts and celebrate female friendship. Sounds great. Sounds perfectly fine. I think that that's, that's a really nice idea. Female friendship is something to be celebrated. Um, but then a a couple of years ago, and it kind of, it kind of did a Festivus kind of thing. You know, you remember, uh, George Costanza's dad on Seinfeld had Festivus, the holiday for the rest of us, um, which is more my speed. I really like the airing of grievances. I think that that's something that should maybe be done more than once a year, um, at least in my house. But, uh, but essentially, uh, (laughs) it kind of, it, it did the festivist transformation uh, into an actual holiday that people were actually celebrating. And then a couple of years ago, you had uh, retailers starting to offer things like the future is female t-shirts and male tears, coffee mugs and things like that as gifts, um, you know, suggested gifts for Valentine's day. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just sitting here going, you know, couldn't we have just kept it positive that would have been great. Um, you know, why, why does every gathering of women need to descend into man bashing? Um, you know, why does it have to be marketed as that? So anyway, so that's sort of the way things are going right now. I would challenge any woman in your listening audience, do celebrate Valentine's Day, um, but celebrate it in the spirit in which it was born. Do not celebrate Valentine's Day by complaining about your husband or men in general and buying all of your closest female friends male tears coffee mugs because that's just mean. <laughs> that it is. That it is. It's the first time I ever heard of it. And I, I some of these shows I just simply don't watch at all. So I had no idea what this was about until I started doing my research last night. But, you know, it, one of the other issues um, that I've always had a pet peeve with is that women wanted to be in the very same combat roles as men. I'm sorry, men mm-hmm. and women are built differently. Uh, but yeah. now, it, is it time to call these gals up on that and say, all right, fine, if you want to be treated exactly like a man in combat, hucking the same rust sack, going into the same battle conditions, now it's time for you to be drafted. What do you say to that? You know, I say I say it's about time, and I don't think, you know, I don't actually, uh, my reasoning for this has nothing to do with women being allowed in combat. I think that they should not be for a few reasons, um, but, or in direct combat positions, infantry and things like that. Um, but essentially, 
when a nation goes to war, the entire nation goes to war. Behind every frontline soldier, there are at least five military support people who are, you know, in doing jobs that are not lugging that 90 pounds on your back and, you know, hiking for 10 miles in the desert heat, you know, and then killing people in hand-to-hand combat at the end of it, right, or in, in uh, you know, gunfights and stuff like that. So, you know, you're not looking at um, a military that is just one, 100% or 90% men in foxholes anymore. That's just not how things work. There are people flying drones. Women can do that. There are people doing administrative tasks, um, you know, uh, communications, uh, distribution of intelligence, uh, all kinds of logistical stuff. Um, you know, quartermasters, all of those things, cooking food in barracks, all of those things, uh, changing tires on military vehicles, they can all be done from relative safety and they can all be done by women. And uh, so I've always sort of thought about the uh, the male-only draft as more as how dare we inconvenience women rather than as uh, you know, a, an issue of, well, women should be allowed into combat roles. Otherwise, you know, uh, they, they, uh, they shouldn't be included. No, women can join the military in, a, in numerous capacities. They should be included in the draft. Um, and uh, as well, when you sort of look at um, the moral hazard that's introduced when more than half your voting population is immune from that type of obligation to the state, that 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 really is a moral hazard. It, you know, women as a voting block could, if they wanted to, vote to you know seal a vote to send people other than themselves to go and fight against their will, against their consent, um, their bodies essentially seized by the state and put to use as the state sees fit. Women could actually achieve that vote all on their own. Only women's votes could actually make that happen. Now, I'm sorry, but I, I see that as a moral hazard. I, I really do. You know, what I, what I find interesting, which I agree with you, that women should be drafted. Israel does it, and they have absolutely no problem with it, and it works very fine. If we follow that example, then we should have no problem. And then the female voter, when she gets home or, and she's there with her family and she's getting ready to go into that voting booth, she's going to think a little bit differently now that she has served. She's going to take that vote, yeah. especially with international issues and national security. She's going to be thinking a little bit differently than when she had no prior experience. What I, I have a big with is, is that unless a woman can do exactly what a man does, the same exact physical requirements, then she should not be up with that combat unit. Do not lower the standards, because if you do, then you put the entire unit in jeopardy. And that's where I have the beef, where they're they're changing, they're doing the social engineering. And that's that's I, I agree. my only issue. I, I agree. I agree with the uh, with particularly with combat positions, right? Because, and it's not just because of the physical standards and and the fact that you know very 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 a minuscule percentage of women are going to be able to meet those standards on par with uh, what men are expected to. Um, you know, and even if they kept the standards uh, identical for both men and women, um, I still would say, you know, I would rather not have women in combat units, and there's a very good reason for that. It's There is something about male social psychology that when you get a bunch of men together, they can operate very efficiently, very cooperatively. Their hierarchies are quite flexible. 
Uh, they don't get into, uh, I don't know if I can say this on the air, pissing contests as often as uh, they do when there are women around. <laughs> um, and they they are willing to, uh, to sacrifice uh, one of their own in ways that they are not willing to do for women. So, I mean, like the... There's all kinds of research on this when, you know, it, when it comes to um, the sort of the, the dilemmas, the moral dilemmas that they put in front of students in social psychology classes and things like that. And they ask them, you know, okay, so you have uh, somebody standing on a, on a bridge above a, a railroad track and there's a train coming and you know there are five people down the line who are going to get hit by that train. And the only way to stop the train is to push the person next to you onto the tracks to alert the driver, right, to alert the engineer. And uh, so one person will die to save the other five. Would you push that person? And most people uh, will be more likely to push that person onto the tracks if they can do it from a room and pull a switch, Right. Um, if they can, if they can mm-hmm. pull a switch and divert the train, so it only it kills the one person instead of the five, rather than actually physically pushing that person off of a bridge into the path of the train. But it's universal. Uh, if that person is a male, they're more likely to push that person than if that person is female. And when you introduce uh, women into these combat units where they're at risk of capture, they're at risk of, you know, torture and interrogation and, you know, execution and all of these things in the modern, uh, the modern combat theater, which is uh, against mostly against terrorist groups and, and uh, people who do not follow, follow the Geneva Convention, uh, not even nominally. Um, what you end up finding is men actually sacrificing the mission in favor of their female comrades rather than the other way around. And that is, uh, that's, a, that's a big problem. Well, in today's modern age, you know, women have so many additional roles. They can get that combat recognition, which they claim they need in order to uh, go up to the next rank. Uh, which is in many cases has been true. But in today's modern military, you have someone like Martha, Martha McSally that can fly and command a unit in a battle. Now, she's a pilot, but when you come to the actual on-the-ground, boots on the ground, women can work with the combat unit as an interpreter, which they have done through the Iraq War. Um, there yeah. are things to do. And in World War II, women were used in many functions. Uh, and yes, they did get themselves into situations uh, in field, but if you can't work with that unit and keep it cohesive, then you don't belong there. So there's certain things I say, unless she can pull the same exact weight as the man, then she doesn't belong there. She should have another function and still be able to advance in rank. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, it's, it's going you know, on. It's Going on. Uh, well, it's, it's, Please finish, it's, You know, it, it really is. It really is, you know, are we equal or are we not? You know, like in Canada, we don't have uh, selective service registration. But the draft is only one piece of legislation away from being uh, brought in again. And one of the things about uh, military conscription is um, usually if you have a war, like Britain didn't need uh, – a draft in World War One. They did not need a draft because they were right there on the, the edge of the 
the uh, military of, of the theater of, of conflict, right? Um, and they were essentially uh, it was in their best interest to involve themselves. Um, Canada and the United States both needed a draft because we were it it was just really none of our business, and uh, it was not supported uh, enough within the popular culture to actually convince enough men to enlist. Men will enlist to protect their own women and children, to protect their own homes, to protect their own uh, families and and communities, right? They will absolutely enlist in sufficient numbers, almost always. Um, But when you're, you know, across an ocean and it really has kind of nothing to do with you and your everyday life, uh, you're you're not going to feel that passion to enlist, uh, there will be some, but not enough, right? So essentially, uh, the draft is, in particular, is brought out uh, when it comes to unpopular wars, wars that that the population isn't really behind. Uh, they're not really in favor of that. And so, I mean, it's it's a it's a touchy thing to begin with, and then to say, you know, half of the population is obje- exempt because of vagina. Uh, even though they have every ability to rise through the ranks in the military to, you know, and there's only one thing that, you know, that uh, up until recently they weren't able to do, you know, I'm sorry, but it's it's just not an excuse. So, Karen, what I want to yes. say was that I, I think a lot of women who are the mindset that, um, hey, if that's what they want to do, let them, you know, fight in the wars and things like that. And I don't think they're looking at the total picture because if it does come down to a draft, guess who's going to be um, forced to go and serve? A lot of women who don't want anything to do with combat. I mean, you got to be fair. If the guys are going to be drafted, the women are going to be drafted. And see, that's where I think they're missing the boat. When they say things like, well, that's what they want to do, let them do it. I think they're just thinking myopic, you know. It's just a group thing. but. There's always the potential that there's a draft. Yeah, but there has never been, regardless of women's participation in the military, uh, starting in World War II, um, there has never been a draft that included women. And so I I think that uh, even when you look at how Hillary answered that question at that town hall or whatever it was, um, that, you know, where someone asked her, should women be included in the draft? And she said, well, I don't know about that. You know, hum, ha, hedge, hedge. Um, dodge, dodge, duck the question. But one thing I do know everybody, all young people should register for is the, to vote, right? And and I'm like, yeah, you, you want all young people to have to, to register, to willingly register for an entitlement, for a right. Um, but you don't want half the population to have to register for an obligation that the other half has to. And uh, so really it is, it's kind of like this buffet, the, the equality buffet where, you know, the, the draft and other negative things um, seem to be those, those items on the buffet table that nobody wants to touch, right? Nobody wants to eat that. Um, and uh, I don't even know what that is, uh, let alone what's in it, and so I'm not touching it. Uh, that that's really how, you know, and I have to give it to the leadership of the National Organization for Women. Um, their membership absolutely does not want this. 
but the leadership has supported uh, in two uh, two <clears throat> challenges, two constitutional challenges, has, has supported uh, including women in the draft with an amicus brief. Um, and now NC, the National Coalition for Men, I don't know whether they now supported them because uh, there, you know, there's quite the rivalry between the two two organizations. But uh, the National Coalition for Men has managed to actually get a federal judge in Texas to say it's unconstitutional to only require men to sign up for this. And that's so. true. You know, I mean, right now we have female combat um, pilots, and um, mm-hmm. they. I mean, if we go to war, they're not going to stay behind. And while their squadron go ahead, which is men, they're going to be included just as well. You know? Well, I think I think you know we could have done this something like this as early as World War One, not in, in terms of filling military positions, but in terms of filling support positions at home. Um, you know, mandatory war work, sewing uniforms. You know, putting women to work, um, doing some of the liaison uh, roles between the military and the civilian populations, right? So uh, writing letters to bereaved parents about their, you know, dead sons on, you know, on the front, things like that. Those, those, all of those roles are necessary and, and they all could have been filled by, uh, by women running switchboards and things like that. So, um, so you're looking at uh, an issue with, you know, it it really has just been, and then, you know, I SCOTUS um, very very clearly indicated that uh, the draft in in 1918, I believe, that the draft was not unconstitutional because it was considered a reciprocal obligation that citizens owed to the state in return for the rights the state granted them as citizens. And then two years later, women got the right to vote without any kind of obligation at all. And people tell me, well, there's the maternal argument for uh, for suffrage, right? The maternal argument for women's suffrage, right? Men have to fight in wars, but women have to have babies and make more soldiers. And I'm thinking there's never been a draft. We have a demographic winter ahead of us, right, where uh, the number of people who are retired – will soon outnumber the people in their prime working years who are paying the taxes for all of that Medicare and all of those social services and all of those pensions and, you know, like the social security and all of that. Right. So, you know, I would say maybe 40 years ago, the government could have stepped in and said, we have a projected emergency on our hands. We need women to have babies. So we're going to draft women to have babies. Any woman between age 18 and 26 is going to have to sign up for a registry and she's going to have to be impregnated and she's going to have to give birth to at least one child during those years. Um, nobody would have stood for it. I mean, just even thinking about it would have made everyone's hair turn white, right? Yet we think that, you know, having a draft where we send 18-year-old boys who up until, you know, the end of the Vietnam War did not have the right to vote until age 21. Um, but, you know, they can they can go off and die for their country. They can get their limbs blown off. They can come back in body bags and, and with, uh, with these catastrophic injuries and post-traumatic stress disorder and still not have the right to vote. Isn't that embarrassing? Um, so, you know, so I guess we better lower it, but we're, only gonna, we're not going to only lower it for draftable men, inductable men. We're going to lower it for women too because... We have to be equal here, 
you know, the whole thing is just, it's so crazy. It's, it's absolutely so crazy when I think about it. Um, you know, they justify lowering the age for both men and women because we have to be equal when the whole reason we're lowering it is because these men are being sent off to die for their country before they are allowed to vote. Um, but the women aren't, but we're going to make things equal. I'm just, oh, it just blows me away. Well, you know, they say here in the United States, I'm sure Canada has similar statistics, that only 10% of American families has a member in the military that has served. And that's a high, a very, very low. So we're asking less than 10% of our male population to serve. You know, if we could rotate the troops and have people come in and serve their two years and go with the draft, I it would be ideal. We could always have a mighty fighting force at ready and well, you're, be you're the military power about, we need to be. You're talking about conscri- like mandatory conscription here. Like, so that's not necessarily draft um, in terms of you know, they're sort of thought of in different ways. Mandatory conscription is something that Norway has. South Korea has it. Um, you know, a bunch of other countries have that sort of mandatory military service. I think it's 20 six months or something like that in South Korea that uh, males have to serve. They have to serve the moment they get out of high school unless they have some good reason to exempt themselves um, or postpone their service rather um, because they don't get to exempt themselves. Um, You know what I found the most interesting about that is uh, it used to be that uh, men who had served their two years and two months or, or whatever it was, uh, that they could use that time in their applications for university. They would get partial credit. They would get partial credit in a university program for that time that they had served that their sisters did not. And then it was decided by the government that that was not fair. It was unfair to women that men got to have this head start when they started university of having these credits under their belt. And I'm thinking you're asking these men to delay their university education by 26 months compared to their sisters who go in right after high school. And you're saying that because they can use it as partial credit to get maybe six months worth of credit, um, that they're get, you're, they're being given an unfair head start, regard, you know, compared to their sisters. I, I, I was just absolutely flabbergasted by that. But this, this really does seem to be, and this, this, this NCFM lawsuit, uh, I think it's really, it's going to make people actually have to come up with good arguments to start, uh, to stop treating women, uh, I guess you would say, with special privilege and exemption. Um, and to actually, uh, you know, think about reason well is there a good reason why we should not treat women equally to men um and it will actually i think hopefully force the population of the united states to actually think about the ways in which men are treated unequally one of the most interesting things is that um back in uh i think it was 1947 or something like no it was in the early 1900s um there was a an international convention signed by the un that was that barred, uh, it was a voluntary non-binding convention um, that barred forced servitude, it outlawed forced servitude um, 
but it had an exemption for uh, prisoners who are mostly men, um, the incarcerated, and it had an exemption for men age 18 to 40. So men aged 18 to 40 were singled out by the international community as being eligible to be put to forced work. Um, and uh, in a in an international agreement, essentially saying this is this is immoral and this is unjust and and nobody should do it and then uh they uh they adjusted it a little bit uh in the 1940s or early 1950s but not by much not by much so well it's, it's an interesting uh debate here because i think eventually the united states is going to have to go for a draft not a conscription, but a draft, and include women. I mean, you hear the feminists, they're screaming because they want to be treated as a special class, which is why they, they go after the men bashing so badly. Hey, you, know, you victimized us all these years, so you have to treat us special. But it's about time yeah. we turn around and say, if you want to be treated as an equal to a man, then you should be eligible for the draft too. Agreed. Yeah, I, I think that really the days of special treatment for women, the days of chivalry, they really need to end. Um, and women need to get, they they need to, you know what, or get off the pot. They need to decide whether they want to be equal or whether they don't. And if they do want to be equal, they're going to have to eat that three bean salad and that stuff that looks like a bucket of mayonnaise with three fish swimming in it at the buffet table that nobody wants to eat because, you know, the men got to eat that, so... You know, we should have to eat that, too. So, Well, we had a few minutes before our next guest uh, gets in on the line with us. Uh, so I have a lot of stuff that I wanted to do and talk to you about. Um, right now, we've got this LB- LBGT community uh, pushing the uh-huh. transgender message. And now you have a state like New York that has a gender X on the birth certificate. Uh, you can leave it fluid. And then you can decide what the gender of your child is, despite the fact they were biologically born either male or female. And now they're giving kids as young as four and five years old puberty blockers. Uh, has this just gone too far? Oh, yeah, it, it absolutely has. You know, and I'm, I'm going to take a science-based approach to this rather than a moral approach. You know, like I'm, I'm going to look at it through the lens of my childhood. I was a tree climbing, salamander catching, knee scraped, um, you know, Lego playing, Nerf rocket loving, water pistol uh, fighting kind of tomboy. And uh, if somebody had come up to me at age six, and uh, and I hung out with almost all boys too, um, if they'd come up to me at age six and said, did you ever really wonder if you're not actually a girl, you're you're actually a boy? You know, I have to wonder what I would have thought about that um, and whether I might have, if it was somebody in a position of trust, somebody I trusted, a parent or a teacher or someone like that, or a doctor, uh, whether I would maybe have agreed um, at age six, which is incredibly, like you're you're not even done figuring out what gender is by that age, um, what boys and girls are and how they're different and how they're the same, right? So you're introducing this complication to, to kids who are not cognitively capable of processing it. And then uh, giving kids, kids puberty blockers, 
Um, it used to be the excuse was, you know, it buys them time to really make up their mind before they make a permanent decision. And, okay, yeah, that's the case. And I can see for kids who come out the other side of puberty who um, who still feel, still have gender dysphoria and want to transition, yeah, that would make transition easier, you know. You didn't develop an Adam's apple. You didn't get the broad shoulders. You didn't, uh, you know, your, your voice isn't permanently deeper. All of those things, it's easier to pass if you've never gone through puberty. But the the, the reality is that about even among kids who start, identifying or start having gender dysphoria at age three, four, five, right, and persist throughout their childhood, of them, 60% desist after puberty. They go through puberty, they have a bunch more changes in their hormones and in their brains, and they come out the other side of that and go, oh, well, I don't feel that way anymore. I actually am okay with being a woman, or I actually am okay with being a man. I feel better, right? And so we're sacrificing those 60% of kids who would grow out of it, essentially, for the 40% who wouldn't. And that's just with puberty blockers. But now we're starting to talk in Canada. Um, a new guidance came down for family doctors because the gender clinics are so full of transgender youth now that uh, that it's increased tenfold over the last 10 years, the number of youth identifying as trans. God, you're just confusing the crap out of these kids, Right. And you're untethering them from reality and you're you're essentially giving them no ground under their feet to, to actually feel grounded in their own gender, uh, however tenuously, right? And uh, so there's 10 times as many kids wanting on the waiting list for these clinics. There's not enough clinics. There's not enough specialists. So we have to have guidance for family doctors. And the guidance that just came down uh, essentially, and it's not mandatory, thank God, um, said that, yeah, you should not just consider puberty blockers, you should also consider starting cross-sex hormones at age 12 or 13 because these kids will want to go through puberty along with their friends. They don't want to be different. They want to be, you know, if, if it's a girl uh, who, who's absolutely 100% positive, she's, she's really a boy, she's going to want to go through boy puberty at the same time as all of her male friends and she doesn't want to be left out and, and doesn't want to deal with social uh, repercussions of that. So we should we should actually put her on hormones that are going to cause permanent changes in her body at age 13. And uh, and then on top of that, we have this new thing, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a phenomenon uh, primarily among autistic girls who uh, showed absolutely no signs of gender dysphoria until they found videos on YouTube of kids who were transitioning or they made a trans friend okay. or they joined their LGBTQ Karen. alliance at school. And, and it's all got all the Karen, hallmarks of a crazy. social contagion. I, I hate to cut you off because we do have our next guest sitting on the, on the phone very, very patiently. Karen Strahan, people can find you up on YouTube and Twitter with girls, right? What, as well as you are, put up pieces on a voice from Ben.com. Thank you for the hard work, Karen. And you know, we always have fun with you coming on the show. You are so knowledgeable. All right. Thank you so much. Karen Strahan, check out her website. Let's bring on a new guest for us, a William Farrell. He's got a new book out there. It is called the boy crisis. Um, why our boys are struggling and what we can do about it. I'm putting it up before the camera so people can see it and know that I've read the book. Welcome aboard, Mr. Farrell. Warren, how are you today? Very well. I'm looking forward. Um, Karen is always quite brilliant, isn't she? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, we love having <laughs> her on. Um, your book and Karen work hand in hand, which is why I had the two of you on, one right after the other. Um, and there's so much to talk to you about. Uh, but tell us about yourself, because um, you are an interesting individual. As a matter of fact, uh, the Financial Times had chosen you as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. Uh, and by the Center for World Spirituality, is one of the world's spiritual leaders. Oh, that is in itself a mouthful. Yeah, I certainly can't pronounce it. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> yeah, I was joking, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Right. The, yes, um, my, my, I guess the, the more um, relevant to our discussion portion of our background was um, that I was originally on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in, um, in New York City and spoke all around the world on women's issues, um, completely from the feminist perspective, and then began in the 70s when I saw there was a great deal of divorces occurring. Um, I began to have, um, uh, you know, ask, you know, look at what was happening to the children of divorce, and I saw that, that many of them were having significant problems, um, but the group of children after divorce that were by far and away having the most problems were children that were not, uh, that didn't have any father involvement after divorce or had very little father involvement, and these were the children that were committing the crimes that were dropping out of school, and then as I studied the issue for, you know, more and more, um, I forgot that I, I started to realize that these uh, were also um, children that were um, that were um, having significant issues when it came to um, postponed gratification, and um, and um, they were they were victims of not having boundary enforcement with their parents. And so I started looking at what the difference was between mom style parenting and dad style parenting, and seeing that that um, that the dad style parenting was very much more oriented toward um, boundary enforcement. That then led to the children having postponed gratification, which then led them to doing better in school or not having postponed gratification and doing worse in school and so that the boy crisis basically resided where fathers did not reside and that was in the two areas both divorce children of divorce to a large degree and then children who um, were born to moms who had them without being uh, had 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 the children without being married, and therefore the fathers were usually minimally involved, not involved, or not even uh, sometimes the children didn't even know who the fathers were. Well, that seems to be a huge crisis today because now we also have single-family uh, moms with multiple children from multiple dads, and that makes the situation even worse. You don't even know who the baby dad is in most cases. Yes, and and then when when the boy in particular, you know, when a when a girl is raised, at least she's usually raised by the, the single mom, um, in a single in single mom cases. So she at least has the identity of her of her biological mother, um, and the guidance and the love and the uh, devotion of the biological mother. Uh, but when the boy is raised without the biological father, um, he you know, and particularly in divorce situations where he hears, uh, oftentimes hears negative things about the father, like the father's a narcissist or irresponsible or, um, you know, is, is um, you know, in other ways a negative person. And the um, boy looks in the mirror and he sees that his body language is a lot like his dad's or his eyes are. And 
begins to wonder if he's a narcissist, a liar, irresponsible, or whatever, um, this can lead the boy to, he, he can't talk to the father about it without the father and mother getting into a big fight and destabilizing the relationship even more, or he, or, and he can't talk to the mother about it without the same destabilization happening. Um, so he, he, he implodes, and boys don't aren't as good about talking their feelings through with people. Um, and so it's um, oftentimes that leads to the boy really worrying about himself, fear, and not knowing what his identity is, and um, and and then also not having the benefits of, you know, p- um, boundary enforcement and the postponed gratification that that leads to, uh, that fathers tend to bring, not having the, the bonding with fathers through things like roughhousing or coaching, um, or, you know, or, uh, and not having the training to try things in, um, in adventuresome that are outside of the comfort zone that tends to be... Um, indicative of dad style parenting and so these are the boys that um, have problems in more than I found when I did the research for the boy crisis in more than 70 different areas um, from depression to suicide to drug overdose to alcoholism um, to um, you know, n- not doing well in school to dropping out of school to being unemployed as a result of dropping out of school um, or being unmotivated even if they're brilliant and sensitive sensitive um, and if they are sensitive being more sensitive to the the lack of, of um, praise that they receive to from teachers from parents from um, uh, and in girl boy time the boys um, uh, note that the girls no matter what they say about desiring sensitive boys they end up going out with the performers not the losers and um, and so the if the boy doesn't perform well um, there is no females of interest around and so he then starts turning to porn because Porn is access to variety of attract, attractive women without fear of rejection, um, at a price he can afford, and um, and so he then starts getting addicted to porn, and porn oftentimes addicts him to greater and greater risk taking with women, and so that when he finally does get connected to a real life woman, um, he finds that the real life woman feels objectified and like she she's not really a, a person who can have a subtle conversation with the, with the guy, and so she rejects him, which then you know just sends him back to more porn to satisfy his uh, cravings and so um you know the cycle continues Warren do you think that um these um smart or artificial intelligent um androids that look like real women and they have the functions of real women do you think men will be drawn to them more than real women not more than real women, but you know the five or six ones that I that I play with every day. No, I'm just joking with you. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they look so real. Yeah, yes, they do. And yes, I think that, no, they will not replace real women, um, but the, but they may replace real women, just like pornography does among boys who cannot have contact or sustain contact with real women um, because it, it does enhance their ability um, to uh, sexually release um, with that, um, and not have to take the risk of being rejected again and again um, by, by real women. And so, but I don't think it's, I think it'll be a long way before, um, you know, they completely, uh, you know, ultimately people are not going to marry those dolls. Um, but they, um, you never know. But, <laughs> right. They become, if they have smart chips put in, into them, 
uh, artificial go. intelligence, you know. Or if the guy hey, is really insecure, they may need dumb chips implanted yeah, in them. There'll be some people who want to give them rights. <laughs> there we go. Right. And I guess I should have said preference with, with men, you know, have more of a preference for these these animated or androids or whatever over real flesh and blood women because there's no 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 reason to feel that you're going to be rejected. That yes, the key thing is just what you said. The uh, you know, what almost no female understands is how the fifty percent or so of women in her class um, at her peer age who are attractive. Um, create in the heterosexual boy um, a form of addiction uh, that boys, um, you know, b- boys will do almost anything they feel that women want, uh, whether it's grab a guitar, whether it's perform in a band, whether it's um, play football and risk concussions and spinal cord injuries and dislocated shoulders to get a piece of leather across um, into the end zone um, and have the cheerleader go first and ten get a concussion again, or I mean get a uh, get a touchdown again, and the um, and so the that's um, and so there's the for the but but boys who are not um, good at performing and don't get the respect of girls and women um, can't attract them and then that leads to a real dilemma for boys a real um, and certainly the um, in that gap um, the, the the dolls and the um, and the you know the increasingly sophisticated pornography um, you know will fill a a gap, but not without also feeling a loneliness and a sadness because every time the boy fantasizes, he is really desiring to be with a real life woman. But the degree to which he does the uh, addiction to pornography is the degree to which the dopamine in his brain, the the feel good drug in his brain only gets stimulated um, when the um, when there is more and more risk that is being taken and that then makes him less able to cope with just everyday conversations from girls or the or to know how to deal with a greater amount of drama and emotions that um, women tend to bring to relationship situations you know there's been a rise of ADHD and autism uh, in today, especially in the United States, um, the ADHD. I had a cousin that had it, and this was back in the late '60s, early '70s. And the first thing they did was drug him. And yes, it seems like every time you have a problem with a child, rather than looking to see what the root cause of the problem is, uh, whether it's lack of discipline, whether it's a lack of a, a two-parent household, they always reach for the drugs. It is certainly a lot. Boy crisis situation. This very much feeds into the boy crisis. And um, John Gray, the fellow who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and who did uh, was a co-author of the book, um, his contribution to the boy crisis book was the five chapters on ADHD and what to do to prevent them to not get addicted to drugs as you're getting un- un- uh, unhooked from ADHD. And here's a, a few of the, of the core understandings of this. First of all, um, first of all, the underlying causes, which I think is the most important um, part of the, the equation. Um, and I'll give you an example of this. So, so bigger picture, uh, children raised predominantly by um, dads, 15% are likely to have ADHD. Children raised predominantly by moms, 30% are likely to have ADHD. Understanding why gives you a huge amount of insight into the differences between 
dad-style parenting versus mom-style parenting. So, for example, um, both moms and dads set boundaries, uh, enforce, uh, I'm sorry, set boundaries the same way. Both moms and dads will say to a child, um, you know, sweetie, um, when you have your, uh, you, when you finish your peas, you can have your ice cream. And kids will test boundaries the same way. They'll say to, um, you know, dad and mom, you know, I had some more peas, so now can I have my ice cream? And uh, But the difference is in the way moms and dads enforce boundaries and how that connects to ADHD. So mo- moms will tend to say, well, well sweetie, I'll tell you what, um, I said you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas, but I know you've been under a lot of stress, and, it's been, and I don't want to spend my you know, few precious moments with you arguing about the number of peas you're going to have. So I'll tell you what, and she'll take a knife and maybe set aside half or two-thirds of the peas and say, when you finish those, then you can have your ice cream. So she's compromised from a originally finishing to now the kid is down to half to two-thirds. So then the child has, you know, maybe half of that half and then says, okay, I had some more peas. Can I have some ice cream now? And now mom is really thinking, all right, he's tried as hard as or she's tried as hard as she or he can. Uh, so I'll tell you what, um, yes, you can have your peas now. And mom's feeling she did, a, you know, she negotiated a good deal. Um, but that, but the child is realizing, ah, um, Mom said I had to finish my piece, but if I work on it, I can, can I can manipulate a better deal. And he, he or she increasingly develops skills to figure out what makes Mom vulnerable to him be, or her being able to manipulate a better deal. Therefore, the child doesn't have to focus his attention or her attention on what she or he needs to do, but rather can focus their attention uh, to not focus their attention on doing the job that needed to be done, the finishing of the piece. With that the dad is more likely to say some version of um, excuse me we have a deal here the deal is and you know that you know the deal you know that I know the deal and the deal is you either finish your peas and have your ice cream or you don't finish your peas and you have your ice cream oh daddy you're so mean mom's not like that well you can continue whining and complaining and there'll be no more ice cream tomorrow there'll be no ice cream tomorrow night either don't even ask for it and then you know the child realizes ultimately uh, with dad I only lose when I try to manipulate I better focus my attention on finishing those peas because the alternative is a worse deal than I had to begin with. And so the child with the dad is more likely, and sometimes these roles are reversed, of course, is more likely to to learn to focus his attention as opposed to have attention deficit and attention wandering in order to manipulate that better deal. And that's just one of a dozen ways that dads tend to do a type of boundary enforcement. And this, this attention deficit disorder is bad enough in the forms that we see it, but it has another a huge problem that's associated with it. The lack of boundary enforcement then leads to the child having a lack of postponed gratification, not knowing how to finish the peas before she or he gets the ice cream she she wants. When you take that postponed gratification, the lack of postponed gratification into school, and you have a homework assignment and a text comes in, you get distracted by the text or the invitation to play a new video game. And so you don't finish the homework, and then you feel badly about yourself compared to your peers because you get the bad grades, and your parents aren't expressing expressing pride to you, and your peers are not expressing an admiration for you. You take it over. Let's say you have a tall boy or a boy who's a good football player, um, but he can't rehearse all the drills of uh, the discipline of football, the discipline of basketball, or soccer, and he ends up not being able to perform up to his par, up to the the, the 
degree that he people know that he's capable of um, in in sports as well. He begins to feel he can't do anything well, and the shame makes him oftentimes withdraw into virtual friends and virtual associations or something in a video game where he can identify with a hero and uh, and rehearse that again and again and beat other kids and then and then becomes uh, addicted to the video games um, or um, again in boy girl time becomes addicted to porn and so these are just a few of the um, outgrowths of that and what John Gray does in his sections of the book are to talk about all of the non-drug related solutions um, things like the importance of sports and what I talk about in my portions of the book are what types of sports so for example there's um, individual sports there's team sports but there's also pick up team sports which are extremely uh, important to help develop um, to help uh, overcome ADHD propensities um, physical activity, um, the importance of knowing which foods to eat, which foods not to eat. Uh, very frequently, ADHD boys will want to have that ice cream first, and that's, that reinforces the ADHD problems. And so there's about 100 solutions that John's portion of the book on ADHD um, talks about that are really so, um, you know, have been very helpful for me in advising parents how to, um, how to overcome that problem question here is then how much has this rise in technology the availability of these violent video games uh social media affected this crisis it's a great deal um but we have to so i'll I'll give you an example um the we often say that the that mass shootings for example are a result of guns toxic family values violence in the media technology, um, things like that. But our daughters also have access to those same guns, the same violence on TV, the same family values, and, um, and they're not doing the shootings. Our sons are. Um, and, so there's, and so we have to ask, why is that happening? So we have males separated out as far more vulnerable um, to doing things like the mass shootings. But then we look more closely and we realize that Almost all the mass shootings, well over 90%, are done not just by males, but by dad-deprived males. Even the males who are in their 40s uh, that are doing the uh, mass shootings, the Stephen Paddock or the, the recent shooting in Aurora, Illinois, was done by males that were older, but they were all dad-deprived, almost all dad-deprived males. And so when boys don't have their fathers um, to do the boundary enforcement, to do the bonding, to, do the, um, uh, to give them a sense of here's the way I can get a- approval from somebody by doing something uh, right, by pushing them into the, beyond their comfort zones, when, by telling them when they fall down on the ski slope, yes, that's fine, I'm, I'm sorry, um, now get up and do it again, as opposed to maybe mom will say, you know, sweetie, you know, if, if skiing is, this is the second time you fell down, hon, and I, you, I know you've cried both times, and you don't have to continue doing this, we can do something else instead. And so moms will tend with their empathy to give more of a way out uh, for, the, for the child. Uh, but the but growth usually comes from um, trying again and then trying again. But, you know, what dads need to learn is there's, a, you know, there's an end to that process, too, where you do give somebody a chance to do something that they are inherently better at so they feel better about themselves. Well, Warren, it has been a lot of fun. We're down to our last five minutes of the show. Uh, your book, The Boy Crisis, 
don't drop it on your feet because it's pretty thick. <laughs> it's an interesting read, and you do offer you do offer some great solutions to a growing problem uh, because we do have a boy crisis. We have a society here today that's losing its moral values, and you point in directions in which we can put people back on that moral value path and make a better society. Thank you. Yes, I really hope if um, you know if a parent is reading the boy crisis, a, a couple of things I'd really recommend paying attention to, which is one is how to structure a family dinner night so that it doesn't become or evolve into a family dinner nightmare, and how almost every every situation that happens uh, during the day that is problematic for the children or you hear about in the news, how that can be constructively used to have children, to, to have everybody in the family learn how to listen to each other's perspectives on it, honor each other's perspectives, rather than just argue over each other. Um, how to eliminate the electronics at the family dinner table. How to be in charge of your children uh, so the children feel that they're not wandering like um, in a dark room without knowing where the end of the dark room is. Uh, that they need that those boundaries um, to make sure that you know how the value of roughhousing in creating empathy. Um, most people do not associate roughhousing with empathy, but it is uh, uh, you know, finding out why it is, knowing what the differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting are, and then knowing the importance of what I call checks and balance parenting, where moms check dads and dads check moms, and then when any given situation comes up, like a child wants to climb a tree, um, being able to sort of take the dad orientation of, yes, okay, sweetie, climb the tree, just be careful, versus the mom orientation of, you know, well, maybe not for the next couple of years, but, you know, eventually you can climb the tree, but not now, and how they can negotiate a deal that, you know, that can give the children the benefit of climbing the tree, uh, but not... The great, a greater likelihood of, of hurting themselves. And so really tune into those chapters of the Boy Crisis book, and I think it'll, you know, I, I, as you said, I'm very, very solution-oriented, and so the solutions should be on the family level, the school level, and the, um, and the societal level where, you know, we're trying to get the presidential candidates to um, suggest the creation of a White House Council on Boys and Men. And as you probably know, on Fox News, I, you know, on Fox and Friends, which Trump often watches, I've suggested that, that he create that as an executive order. And, well, and I thank do need you so to much for off. the hard work you do. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, we've got two minutes left, and then we're going to be cut off. But people can find you at your website, which is your name, warrenfarrell.com. Thank you very much, Warren, for the hard work you do, and God bless. Yeah, Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Well, that's all we got for today, uh, Curtis. Uh, man, yeah, we had a the full show plate. Just, just flew past. Like, like, absolutely, full plate. We're working on having a full plate for next week. Um, so, Dr. Avita King. For that. I just want to make. Yeah. Oh, yes. Avita King is going to be on. Uh, we also have Wilfred Riley. He's book out. Uh, which is the hate crime hoax, which is a very interesting book. Be amazed how many hoaxes are out there. It's a lot more than you think that uh, the media is not telling you about. And the latest one, the Jesse Smollett. So we'll be talking about that and a lot more when we come back on Friday. And uh, thank you, Cool Mike, for joining us uh, here. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, thank you, everyone, that was in the chat room. We had a, a chock-full chat room. 
And I'm sorry, Cal, I did get to your last question there. I do apologize uh, for that, but uh, we try to do what we can do. I want to thank everyone that was listening up on YouTube and Facebook also. So I say that's just about all, unless you've got something to say for 30 seconds here. Oh, yeah, I just want to say that um, I was not ignoring anyone in the chat room today. I was not able to get in. Hopefully I have this worked out by next Friday. Well, That's hopefully we'll have, I'll have everything worked out. I, I really screwed up the seconds. start of the show, but uh, that's just about it. So I want to again thank everyone that's been up in the chat room, and uh, we'll see you all there on the Internet. So I say until then, I say good night, and God bless. Yep. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.